Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, April 27, 843 Or is it 866 Tell Ken? Both. So both numbers are active as we speak. Yep. Um, I don't like saying my name over the airways. Why not? I just don't. Well, pretend it's another case. Because I'm a humble servant. You know that about me by <laughs> oh. now, Rev. It's not about me. It's about the masses and the mm-hmm. uh, the the job, the responsibility at hand. Mm-hmm. It's never been about me. Uh, as most politicians, I'm a, uh, a humble servant, a public servant, right. um, altruistic in nature, <laughs> never doing things that better my position in life, always thinking about my fellow man and and how I can improve his position, his standing, his lot in life. It's just in the politicians' genes mm-hmm. to do things for everyone else. Um, uh, a, a true public servant, yes. Well, it's not just a public did, servant; it's a humble oh, public servant. And how long did it? Take but I'm, you I'm to... not. I'm not. No. Here's here's the, the 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 official line here. I've gone from being a public servant to being a humble servant. Mm. I was a public servant at one time. Um, now I'm a humble servant. Because I'm not sure I am a, I mean, the, the qualifications for public servant or asking someone uh, to allow you to go to Washington uh, or Columbia or, you know, a local elected official, um, in particular Washington, that, that humble servant mm-hmm. or that public servant, it turned into humble servant, yeah. Um, that's kind of the natural transition for folks like me when, when they stop becoming. But, but the common thread is you're a servant. You're the, the servant. servant of the people. I am a practicer, a practitioner of servanthood. Oh, okay. There you go. Right. Practitioner right. of servanthood. And the number is still 866-TELL-KEN. Yeah, okay. I see why Mike wants to be. He's uncomfortable. Too comfortable oh. over there, Rip. Got a little smile and a chuckle on his, oh, really? on his face. You know, those, you know, those guys from um, up north are. The sarcasm, the, the sarcasm it. drips from the uh, producer's studio. Well, well, you know, when you when you're when you're telling those kind of jokes and it is that funny, how can you help not smile, chuckle and laugh? We had a big meeting yesterday. Uh, we met we with the uh, the officials from Francis Marion University. We met with the officials from WMBF um, about the debate mm-hmm. that will be one week from tomorrow. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, thank you to our listeners for seizing upon the opportunity to buy your tickets. Um, it's kind of like a Springsteen concert. <laughs> well, and they're actually Am I free. Right? There, there's no buying tickets. I they're, don't they think there's any on StubHub at three times the market price. Uh, when I went to Madison Square Garden to see Springsteen, it, I, mean, I had a second and third mortgage on my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and I'm the only person there. I mean, Bruce went to this tirade against money and bankers and rich people. Um, and I looked around, and I think I was the only person in my section who didn't work at Goldman Sachs. So, um, yeah, I'm sitting in Madison Square Garden with my uh, oldest kid, and we're waiting on the Springsteen concert. I look to my left, and there's Jamie Dimon. Is that Pete Sampras? That's Katie Couric. <laughs> <laughs> and then Springsteen comes on stage and talks about the, um, the ill-gotten wealth mm-hmm. of, the, uh, of the banking class and how the world blew up and those – you know, I don't want to say what he said. Those um, ah, those uh, B S T A R D S uh, ended up on the good side <laughs> really? of it, and the working class. You know, those people he writes about oh, yeah. that he has nothing in common with. Exactly, um, he's one of those. You know, as, as a matter of fact, well, I mean, he would be much more in um, in tune with the chairman, excuse me, the president of Goldman Sachs than he would. Uh, so he would be one of those B S T A R D S from Goldman that he's talking about. But yeah, I looked around. I said, "Well, I'm the only person here not wearing a Armani suit, you know, and Gucci loafers." What am I doing here? Because I'm the moron who. The funny uh, thing is, those people paid their ticket price, 
supposedly, to go in there and see his concert, and he gets in there and starts insulting them, the very fans that paid all that money to come see him. Uh, full confession. Full care. confession. You ready? Here's the confession. I don't think I've ever made this confession. So a buddy of mine got me the tickets. I mean, he's in the business, so to speak. He's a little bit like you. I mean, he's kind of one of these guys that is a, a beat around in that uh, entertainment world for a long time. He had a hookup at Madison Square Garden. He had a buddy of his who helps um, logistically with, with the shows, whether it's the you know the spring the Rolling Stones, Spring U two, whoever goes to to Madison Square Garden. He's one of these guys who um, just kind of been in the business a long time. Cool. So he, um, I just had my political um, crap storm. And I think he felt like, I'm going to do something nice from a man. I'm going to do something nice from a buddy. So he calls me and he says, hey, I know you're a big Springsteen fan. I happen to have two really good seats in Madison Square Garden. I'm like, that's New York, man. I don't go to New York. But it's Springsteen in Madison Square Garden. So it is kind of a bucket list thing for me. So I took him up on it. Um, so we get on a plane. We fly to New York City, my oldest son and I. Um, and as we're getting there, my oldest son goes online to like StubHub or SeatGeek or one of these, um, you know, broker sites. And he says, hey, dad, look. And he didn't say the, the number. He said, look at my phone. And he showed me the phone. And the tickets were like $6,800. <laughs> I mean, we had like lower bowl, you know, side of stage, um, really good seats. And, um, <laughs> and I'm going like, you want to sell them? <laughs> <laughs> the thought crossed your mind. You, know, you better believe it. I mean, not for 68 bucks. $6,800 per ticket. I said, want to find us a couple of bankers at Goldman Sachs who have gotten back on their feet uh, that, that may have an extra, what, 13, 6 laying around? <laughs> and let's um, let's head back to the airport, go home, and, and buy us an Armani suit and some Gucci loafers, and then we'll go back. We'll catch, where the, we can, yeah. catch the show later on YouTube. But, uh, but yeah, they, it was a um, kind of a wild time. And I, I guess um, here's what I have found in my travels to the Big Apple. Uh, a pocket full of money in Pamplico does not equate to a pocket full of money in New York City. No. That pocket full of money in Pamplico that'll get you through a week or two gets you through about an hour or two in New York City. In fact, it'll pay the cab driver to get you from one side of the city uh, to the other. It's a um, it's not a foreign experience, and I love New York. I mean, I mean this sincerely. I don't have any, any interest at all in moving up there, living near Just there. Just because the New Yorkers like to listen to you talk. Well, they do. You from South Carolina or Texas. I mean, every time I go there, I get that. You from South Carolina or Texas? Um, where are you from, man? What kind of language are you speaking? Uh, what is the garden? I mean, there, there is no garden. It's a garden. A medicine school. You go, in, go to the concert of the garden tonight? No, I'm not going to the garden. There's no such thing as a garden. Uh, th there's a garden that you grow crops, and there's a medicine square garden. And then there's, a, there's an old Boston garden that, um, that the Celtics uh, formerly played in. So anyway, talking about rich guys, Elon Musk still um, kind of front and center. Uh, he doesn't work at Goldman. Uh, he was on the opposite side of this um, this Twitter deal. But um, So interesting uh, because you kind of called this that uh, he would be the conservative hero. He's coming to the rescue of conservatives all over the earth. Right? And? 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 Well, that, that's, that's what that's the narrative now. I mean, well, I mean, you listen to people talk. He's here to save the world. When I left here, I turned the radio on uh, Glenn Beck, and Beck says, you know, um, is Musk Jesus or not? I mean, it was kind of the, you know, uh, is, he the um, is he the entrepreneurial, is he the, um, the artificial intelligence enhanced version of Jesus or is he not? And, um, and I just try to give fair warning. And I, I think I predicted, okay, thank you for the, um, for the, uh, the unsolicited credit. I think I said yesterday that that will be the sentiment. 
of conservative world. And and this conservative world centers around um, conservative talk radio and Fox News. A couple of websites out there are far more prominent than than most. But yeah, I mean it was um it was kind of the drum beat from I mean I made a point yesterday to listen to some of Beck and, and Beck's still in this great reset mode, but he did integrate some of the um some of the Elon Musk being savior of the world and liberating conservatives all over America. Uh, Bongino comes on, and Bongino was ready for, I mean, he was uh, he was really ready fire aim after about 12 because uh, the Republicans were a bit giddy yesterday. They were enthusiastic about what happened uh, with Twitter, and then you get to Hannity, and um, Hannity's still talking about things he talked about 20 years ago, but uh, he still inter- integrated some of the... Um, some of the Elon Musk talk, and then even Mark Levin last night. I was in my car later than normal, and uh, Levin came on. So every conservative show host on our network, on our stations, um, was very uh, Musk was praiseworthy. I mean, there was a lot of praise heaped his way, and um, and the only thing I tried to, or the point I tried to make yesterday, um, and and Jeff's exactly right. Um, Jeff agreed. We've had two conversations. Um, Jeff, if you're listening, you probably aren't because Democrats don't get that early uh, two days in a row. But if you are, if you happen to be um, on your way carrying your Republican buddy to work or something like that, <laughs> um, we got to stop this because are, are we in ratings period? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, and I don't need to be agreeing with people like Jeff yeah, during ratings period. That's bad for business. So um, we need to get back to arguing about something, something, uh, one, of, one of these pipe dreams you believe in that I can um, call out as a pipe dream uh, yeah, but but Musk was the topic of conversation. Um, there, there are a lot of stories now leaking about, you know, he basically, I mean, he, he commanded control of this conversation, Reb. Um, he made his mind up um, after, well, I mean, if you believe what you read, Politico had a big article. Politico was no um, fan of the, the conservative right. I mean, Politico's kind of become the dumping ground for whatever the liberals want, um, semi-mainstreamed. Politico would be a, um, they're not trustworthy, but they are, uh, what am I trying to, they are a bridge. We've argued that Garth Brooks was the bridge between country and, and rock. They are the bridge between the New York Times and Salon. Politico's kind of the, um, uh, they plug the gap that exists between somebody who professes to be more mainstream and legitimate and the Atlantic Magazine, who you know are really hawking uh, the, the claims and agenda of the left or, or the uh, the political American left. Um, Politico had an interesting article yesterday about um, Twitter's top lawyer and her involvement in a lot of the um, negotiations. Her name is, uh, I'll do the best I can, she's an Indian or of Indian descent, uh, Vijaya Gade. Uh, we'll call her Miss Gade. Miss Gade broke down in tears during a virtual meeting with the company's policy and legal teams on Saturday afternoon when it became apparent that Elon Musk had secured the funding. Um, she began discussing with um, with some of the Twitter legal team and um, corporate hierarchy uh, the ramifications of, uh, of Musk's purchase of the, uh, uh, the formerly public, well, still publicly owned um, social media platform. And according to Politico, I want to quote them and give them the story. Um, Mrs. Gade cried during the meeting as she expressed concerns about how the company could change. Now, not only was she their top lawyer, um, she's been with Twitter since 2011. 
She has moved up through the ranks of Twitter. She was the key executive in charge of, their words, not mine, you ready? Trust and safety, legal and public policy functions. That is what uh, Politico quotes her job as being. That's basically the company's moral authority. But I mean, if you said, hey, who represents the moral authority of Twitter? It would have been uh, this female lawyer who was a high-ranking official at Twitter. Um, her teams, the teams she leads, I mean, they are in charge of what we call content moderate or, or content moderation. Um, uh, she's the one that formally authorized um, blocking the Hunter Biden laptop story. She was the one, well, she didn't block the story. She blocked the distribution of the story via their uh, social media platform. I mean, nobody can block the story. I mean, the New York Post came out with the with the story. She just chose for it not to be included in the tweets and retweets and sharing and commenting and all these other sorts of things. She made the call to ban Trump from Twitter after the uh, events of uh, January 6th. She also... Um, Banned, and this was where she got a little bit of pushback. Had no pushback with the Hunter Biden story amongst her team. Had no pushback with um, banning Twitter or banning Trump from Twitter. She did get some pushback, surprisingly, um, when she when when she kind of led the charge to ban um, the early speculation about COVID nineteen perhaps being a lab leak. You know, remember the theory we had about, um, you know, bat to human transmission, kind of the in, in natural transmission as opposed to the, um, to the lab leak. So she's the one that got her away, so to speak. Didn't have to twist arms to get Trump banned. Didn't have to twist arms uh, to um, disallow the Hunter Biden laptop story. But she did have to twist some arms um, in disallowing any speculation that maybe, just maybe, COVID-19 emerged from a, um, a Wuhan lab. Uh, named the Wuhan Virology Lab. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the um, so the virus starts in Wuhan, and we've got a Wuhan Virology Lab. Um, okay. Uh, to quote John Stewart. To quote, uh, yeah, we may play that again today at some <laughs> point in time. But it's just kind of interesting. I mean, it lets you behind the scenes a little bit, the Politico article. If you're interested in this story, and most of you are, um, I would encourage you to go read the article because, once again, Politico is no um, sympathizer. But, but, why, but why does she cry? I mean, is it because she's she's going to lose her power? That's interesting. And control? I don't know, Rev. I, I really don't. I, I mean, mean, this is business, obviously. But, but but something has happened to the makeup of humanity. I mean, I, I believe this sincerely. Um, I was listening to Red Eye Radio coming over this morning. I'm just trying to wake my head up and get you know my juices flowing. And they were talking about an article in Vox. And in the article in Vox, and I'm not saying it applies to this lady. Obviously, this lady's a hardworking, dedicated employee. I mean, she's probably liberal as all get out. But, I mean, she's made her way uh, in the corporate world to a position of, um, I mean, they refer to her as, as Twitter's moral authority. Now, now so, so she can't be a, um, you know, dumb and lazy. You know, like, oh, he's dumb and lazy. I mean, he's good for nothing. He's dumb and lazy. Um, so she can't be that. I mean, I don't buy that. I think she's probably um, emotionally dedicated, personally and professionally, to, to a leftist agenda. Um but, but companies like Twitter, you tend to be, I mean, if she were a conservative lady from the South, she probably doesn't end up, no matter how uh, proficient she is, how dedicated she is, she probably doesn't end up. But I'll give you an example. My daughter is at the Dartmoor School of Business. Just use her as an example. My daughter wants to go to law school. So let's hypothetically say my daughter continues to progress 
make good grades in this Dartmouth School of Business, a, an acclaimed uh, top 50 business school in America. She goes to law school. She gets that job. She goes and interviews at Twitter. Um, tell me a little about, about yourself. Well, I'm from South Carolina. Um, I'm a registered Republican. I've helped in many, many Republican campaigns. In fact, my dad was a former Republican office holder in the Deep South. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, nice, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice, nice to meet day. you. And, we, and your name is Libby? That's real Southern. Okay. <laughs> um, we wish you nothing but the best. In fact, um, we've got a Twitter koozie, a Twitter t-shirt, and a Twitter cap, a visor. Um, because it's hot down south. Um, waiting on you. <laughs> yeah, good luck in your waiting future you endeavors. Waiting on outside. We've got these other folks that we're probably um more interested in. So yeah, I mean, I think you know when you when you begin selecting people who are going to um make big decisions on behalf of your business or corporation. Sure, I mean, absolutely. I think you find like-minded people, and I think you know to decipher some of this is. I don't say it's easy. And, and I'm not saying, you know, I've never said liberals are dumb. I mean, I don't believe that for a second. If they were dumb, I wouldn't be so worried about them. I think they're misguided. I think they're wrong on the issues. But I've never argued that, that liberals in general are dumb. Um, I think that's what scares people about Musk. He's not a liberal, and he's not dumb. I know that's what scares people about Peter Thiel. What is the New York Times referred to as Thiel? Uh, or referred to Thiel as the most dangerous smart man in America. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, if the, if, the, if the movement within, and this is what I think is saying, maybe we can do a show on this. I think Teal, Musk, uh, J.D. Vance, I mean, they, they add some intellectualism. I mean, they, they, they add a certain level of aptitude and, and IQ that most of us, 99.9% of us don't have. And, and I think for them to be uh, not on board, remember we said yesterday, um, don't Fool yourself into believing that Elon Musk is buying Twitter so Twitter can unleash the genius of conservative America. I mean, I just, for the life of me, don't buy You'd that. You'd probably be very disappointed. Well, if I mean, if, if, if he bought it for $50 million instead of $44 billion, okay, that's chump change. He spent one of every $4 he has in this world. Now, I understand that, that you know, one of every $4 when you have $275 billion still leaves you plenty to go to, you know, uh, on a vacation with or do whatever it is you choose to do. But there's still a calculus that had he, that, that he had to account for when he made uh, this sort of decision. Um, so I'm just not buying what, what a lot of the other conservative talk leaders and, and opinion leaders are selling in that this is a great day for conservative America because a guy has come to our side. I don't think Elon Musk has come to our side by any stretch of the imagination. I think the stars aligned, as I said yesterday morning. He's one of us now. He's one of us on this yeah, deal. This issue. Our, our interest just happened to issue. line up. Bingo. Bingo. Our interest lined up. We believe, whether correct or not, and I think we're right, we believe that censor, or excuse me, that Twitter censored people on our side of the political debate. They didn't handle our, our, our side of the argument fairly. Um, and he's kind of a free speech absolutist, but I think he has a lot more in mind and in plan. Somebody asked me yesterday, what do you think Musk has in mind? I said, look, man, when the car gets in the ditch, I'm trying to get the car out of the ditch. Elon Musk is thinking about how to design a car that never gets in a ditch. I mean, he and I are hooking the, the wrecker up to the front end of the car. We're going to pull it out the bog. I mean, that's all I'm thinking about because that's all my intellectual capacity or horsepower will allow me to think about. How this damn fool run this car in this ditch? 
Got to get it out now. Elon Musk is thinking about how can we build a car that never runs in a ditch again? I mean, I just think that's who he is. I think that's his, um, I think that's the, uh, the, the celebrated genius that is within visionary. Yeah, sure. I mean, just an absolute genius and visionary. And, um, so, so what, you know, if we're trying to convince ourselves that we know exactly what Elon Musk is up to, but we're fools. I think he's up to a lot of things. And then once again, I tried to articulate or illustrate, um, some of the ways he could maximize other businesses with Twitter being a media platform that he thinks can grow. I mean, I, I do believe this. I think he thinks one of the reasons Twitter has not grown as fast as Facebook or Google is they've not done a good job of arguing against censorship. The, the general public believes, I mean, if you ask Joe on the street that tweets a little bit, hey, do you think uh, Twitter censors against conservative America? Yeah, I mean, yeah, they do. I mean, of course they do. They didn't let the Hunter Biden story on there. They, um, the Wuhan, yeah, that's right. I didn't think about that, you know, and yeah, they, they keep Trump off Twitter. Of course. I mean, yeah, I think the average uh, American with any political inclinations will agree to that, but that's not why he bought it. Trust me, that's not why he bought it. To Rev's point, our um, our stars lined up in this one rare moment. Take a break. We'll be back in just a second. 843-661-0937. This lawyer's kind of easy on the guys. I'm just saying. Eight, uh, really? Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, look at Mike trying to look. Yeah, there you go. He's <laughs> wide awake today. Wide awake. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, Breeze. Uh, what, yeah, I agree with you 100%, kid, but uh, I'll tell you this. uh Elon Musk bought the thing because he felt like he could make, a money, make some money. There was a market for free speech, I think. He's going to figure out a way to make more money and have more influence. You know, like you said, advertise his product. But that's that I could care less. I'm like you are. I mean, the fact that he did it, he did it. And he's on our side for now. I saw a funny face that Elon Musk has done more for free speech in one afternoon than the Republicans have done in 10 years. And I've come to the conclusion, too, that, you know, Bitching and raising hell at the Democrats ain't going to get anything accomplished because they don't give a crap about us because we don't vote for them, right? So the only people we can bitch and raise hell at is who? The Republicans. So, you know, you can sit back and you say, well, listen, here in South Carolina, I think the Republicans fumbled the ball during COVID, and they need to be told that. They shut our state down. They did They did all of this crap. They let these all this mass nonsense go on, and, you know, and they need to be told that. They need to be held accountable. They need to be told, listen, you need to tell us you're sorry for all the money you cost me. They cost me a bunch of money. You know, they, we didn't have to shut down the state. They could have done something with these crazy Democrat mayors. What are the Republicans in the state doing right now to ensure our freedoms, our liberties, our free speech? I would like for somebody to tell us exactly what they did. I'm not talking about nuances or I made this statement. What did you do to ensure our liberties? You know, and, and what are you going to do to ensure them in the future that this crap never happens again? You know what I'm saying? Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it, my man. You know, to that point, I don't know how many of you know, that there's a book out um, uh, called This Will Not Pass. It's written by, I can't think of the guy's name, but it's anyway, it's kind of a, a collaboration with Mitch McConnell. He said many, many conversations with Mitch McConnell. This is a, an appropriate time to go down this road. Um, in the book... Uh, per the author, Mitch McConnell describes himself as exhilarated about the potential damage President Trump did to himself when uh, the events of January 6th unfold. He said, and I quote, 
I feel exhilarated by the fact that this fellow finally totally discredited himself. Jonathan Martin is one of the authors of the book called, and the book is This Will Not Pass. Um, the uh, Trump was, in McConnell's words, thoroughly discredited by what happened and his encouraging of the events January 6th couldn't happen at a better time. I mean, McConnell went on and on and on mm. in this um, in this book, This Will Not Pass. Um, uh, McConnell tells his staff in some of the reports, some of the, um, I mean, the book's not out yet. It's coming out, I think, maybe next week. Some of the um, preliminaries and some of the early releases, uh, they'll allow members of the media to get an advanced copy of the book so they can report. But um, uh, calls Trump a despicable person, um, says that we crushed the son of a, and that's what we're going to do in the primary in 2022. So let's hold on to that for a second. You got McConnell uh, reportedly saying these things uh, via a, a third-party accounting, a book written by a guy named um, Jonathan Martin. Now, McConnell will probably deny that he said some of these things. Um, I'll let you, the Republican electorate, decide who do you trust, the guy writing the book or Mitch McConnell. Um, so McConnell basically says that the party has to get rid of Donald Trump. I mean, that doesn't surprise anybody. I mean, Breeze would argue, you know, nobody would argue against um, if McConnell could have his way as Senate Minority Leader and a high-ranking member and spokesperson of the quote-unquote conservative movement, he'd rather live in a world without Donald Trump. I mean, I can assure you with that. He'd probably rather live in a world without uh, Ron DeSantis. He'd much rather mm-hmm. live in a world Maybe with right. a Chris Christie as president, a John Kasich as president, or a Jeb Bush as president. But let's go to some of the swing states, because after I read this article about what Jonathan Martin's reporting in this kind of advanced copy, the, the story is actually in uh, uh, the Washington Post. And it's kind of an accounting of what is to come in this book called This Will Not Pass. And McConnell makes it known, I'm done with Trump. I mean, I'm done with Trump. I'm done with his ilk. You know, th- this is not what our party's about. Um, but then you look at some of the polling in the morning consult. Uh, did some polling in swing states, Georgia, North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. We touched on this a few weeks ago, and I think it plays into this argument we're making. I think it really plays into Breeze's point. Uh, in Georgia, Trump holds a 39-point lead over McConnell amongst Republican primary voters. In North Carolina, Trump holds a 41-point lead over McConnell amongst primary voters. In Ohio, Trump has a 44-point lead over McConnell, um, 80 to 36. Pennsylvania, 41-point lead, 77-36. So in Georgia, Trump's approvals are 86 amongst Republican primary voters. McConnell's 47. In North Carolina, Trump's is 87%. Uh, McConnell's is 46%. In Ohio, 80-36. In Pennsylvania, 77-36. So Trump's approvals are somewhere around 80%. In amongst Republican primary voters in these swing states, McConnell's approvals are 40%. But McConnell has convinced whomever um, is the political hierarchy within the Republican Party that he's the guy to follow. And it really goes back to what Dr. Thickpin said a couple of years ago, uh, maybe four years ago. You know, the problem with the Republicans right now, those who believe the party belongs to them, don't care for the people required to vote to keep them in charge of a party that they believe belongs to them. And that's kind of the crux of where we are today. It's the, um, 
it's it's the controversy of Trump. You know how much is how much is too much of Trump? How much is not enough of Trump? It doesn't matter. I mean, the Republican electorate said loudly and clearly that we like the way Trump leads this party. That's the way we want to be disruptive. We want to be chaotic. We don't want to behave. We don't. You know, um, the 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 Tuesday election of JD Vance will really define. You know where we go from here. I think Trump made a great call in Ohio. I don't think he made a good call in Georgia by endorsing David Perdue over Brian Kemp, and we'll get into that uh, this morning. But McConnell's basically arguing, if this book is accurate, and I would imagine as most um, brokered accounts are, some accuracy, some accurate, uh, inaccuracy, uh, some of what he really said, some embellishment of what he probably didn't say. But McConnell basically says several times in the book that I'm exhilarated about the damage Trump has done to himself well, he's, why would a Republican be exhilarated about the damage a Republican president, uh, whether his perceived or not, has done to himself because he despises not being in charge of the electorate? The only thing Mitch McConnell is interested in is telling you where to stand and what to say and where to go. I mean, that's it. That's what the Republicans have historically done. And I think Breeze touched on something a second ago. We've waited with bated breath for the Republicans to do something about free speech, and they've not. All of a sudden, the richest guy on the planet buys a, um, a social media company, and the Republicans bow their chest, you know, it's time now. I mean, look, yeah, the, the world, you didn't do anything. You've had nothing to do with this. We've waited forever for you to address some of these concerns. Uh, Section 230 of the American Decency Act. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways. J.D. Vance said yesterday, God bless him, J.D. Vance says Twitter is a small part of this. We still look at, we still need to look at um, politically how can we um, demand of Google to expose themselves and their algorithms. I mean, so Vance is saying this is, this is the beginning, but the conservatives didn't do this. I mean, there's nothing, there's not a conservative Republican office holder in America today that deserves any credit at all for Elon Musk doing what Elon Musk did. It is a celebration of free speech. It is a good day to be somebody who believes their opinions have been censored and, uh, and treated unfairly and disproportionately in the public square. But the Republicans didn't do this. But I mean, if we're waiting on the Republicans, we'll wait our lives away. And that's kind of what Breeze is touching on, and that's exactly um, the case. So do you Republican office holders and, and Republican officials who, who walk around today a little taller than you did a couple of days ago, um, go back in your hole. I mean, we don't expect you guys to do much of anything any longer. And I've given McConnell a lot of credit on Supreme Court justices. And I've given McConnell a lot of credit on um, doing some of the um, nuances of, of government that Trump has no interest in. But when McConnell says that I'm exhilarated about the potential damage President Trump has done to himself, that lets you know exactly who he is. Because roughly 90% of Republican primary voters have forgiven Donald Trump if he did um, demean or diminish himself, if he did things that caused, um, you know, anger, excuse me, caused uh, damage to the brand that is Donald Trump. The Amer excuse me, the Republican primary voter are fine with it. Now, now, you can call that irrational. You can call that impractical. But a Republican office holder didn't, doesn't get to demand. In other words, I've always felt this, and this is probably the biggest uh, problem I have with Republicans today. The Republican hierarchy believe it's their responsibility and obligation to mold the electorate as they need the electorate to be. I think an electorate is at its best when it's organic, 
when it's uncontrollable, when it decides um, the divisions within, not not some um, some meeting in Washington. You know, a think tank gets together and says, hey, here needs to be the messaging. We, we've got to turn this um, this 80% approval rating Trump has with primary voters. We've got to turn that into 65. So here's how we do it. I mean, that's what you're getting out of your Republican leadership. Now, there's some outliers. Uh, Jim Jordan would be an outlier. Rand Paul would be an outlier. Ted Cruz kind of got a foot in each camp. Uh, we're finding out exactly who Kevin McCarthy is. I mean, McCarthy says, I didn't say it. Now we know he did say it. I didn't, uh, I didn't mean it to sound that way. I mean, what did you mean, Mr. McCarthy? Uh, you want to be Speaker of the House? These guys, and, and our frustration has been for probably 30 or 40 years, the beholdenness that our leaders have to Washington um, at the expense of the electorate. I mean, in essence, that's the argument. That's why, I mean, if, the, if, if, if McConnell had done what we expected McConnell to do and demanded of Mitch McConnell, there would have never been another President Trump. I mean, we, we would have said, that guy's crazy. He's a reality TV star. He's not going to be our nominee. But McConnell's really as uh, much to blame as Barack Obama is for why we got President Donald Trump. And it seems to me, uh, we'll find out sooner than later, but it seems to me that um, despite Trump's absence from the public square, uh, the intensity has not waned. I mean, it's absolutely, um, it's still there. I mean, it's it's 80%, it's 86%, it's 80, uh, well, here's the numbers, uh, 86, 87, 80, 77. So Pennsylvania, a little more biased purple, uh, Pennsylvania 77%, but in red Georgia, Trump's approval's 86%. Amongst Republican primary voters, um, North Carolina, 87%. Ohio, 80%. That's unfathomable. I mean, to, for your approvals to be that high, uh, we went and prepared yesterday or did kind of a walkthrough on our debate. Um, we're having a debate. Why? Because Tom Rice is a bad congressman. Some think he is. Some think he's not. We're having a debate because Tom Rice chose to do what? Impeach Donald Trump. We're not having a debate next Thursday. If Trump does, excuse me, if Rice does not vote to impeach Donald Trump, he did. And here we are. Take a break. Back in a minute. I've always argued there were many, many Republicans that didn't want to vote for Donald Trump, but they felt they had no choice. I mean, I think there were some enthusiastically in support of President Trump. They kind of celebrated and um, and were intrigued by some of the behavior, some of the antics, some of the um, unconventional methodologies he used. Uh, to get elected and to govern, for that matter. But a lot of Republicans just felt they had no choice. Uh, am I going to continue to do exactly what I'm told to do and get the same results and and consider myself to be an intelligent woman or man? Uh, I, I think a lot of that there were a lot of personal hashing out of that reality. And I think so. So yeah, I and mean, I think there are two camps of Trump voters. I think there are those who kind of enjoy, you know, the the, the craziness. Uh, the the unconventional uh, the unconventional way he does uh, the business, and I think there are others who go, man, I wish he'd be a little bit different. <laughs> but but he's not like the rest. He's not a McConnell. He's not a Christie. He's not a um. I mean, I saw Chris Christie, if I'm not mistaken, campaigning in South Carolina with uh, Tom Ross, Congressman Ross had Chris Christie with him a couple of days last week. I'm not sure that helps. I mean, I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe I don't have my hand on the pulse of the voters, uh, the Republican voters in the 7th Congressional District. But I think it reminds people of establishment. I think it reminds people of connectivity to Washington and the status quo. And, I, you know, you, 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 buy, you bought it, you got to own it, I guess. 
I mean, there's some degree of that. You know, when you vote to impeach former President Trump, I don't know how you, you wiggle off the hook of being an establishment Republican. Um, I've never, and I've said this and made some of our listeners angry, I've never considered Congressman Rice anti-America first. I mean, I think Liz Cheney epitomizes anti-America first. I think she is a globalist at heart. I think she uh, believes in the Bush doctrine with every fiber of her body. I think she is all in uh, in opposing this nationalist populist movement or, or energy within the Republican Party. I've never seen, uh, you know, example after example of Rice saying or doing things that led me to believe that he was an anti-America firster. But I think when you bring Chris Christie in, you, you kind of just to give that friendly reminder, remember me? I mean, I'm the guy that did, you know, what everybody thought I shouldn't do in, in that moment of time. Uh, it'll be an interesting debate because, um, once again, we were talking yesterday with our friends at MBF and our friends at Francis Marion. We're not having this debate if Rice doesn't take that vote. I mean, he's an incumbent congressman. Um, I don't know how popular he is. I've not seen any polling on Tom, but uh, he's an incumbent from Horry County representing a district that, you know, includes about 52% of the electorate from Horry County. Uh, so it seems to be uh, safe, but you take that vote, you invite challengers, and and we're off to the races now. But um, but no, it's just it's kind of an interesting when when Breeze says Elon Musk did more for conservatives than he's right, he's exactly right. Take a break. <laughs> Back in a minute. One of the interesting metrics to pay attention to, if you're on Twitter, I mean I'm on, but not incredibly active. But one of the interesting metrics to pay. Uh, close attention to is what sort of increase in followers uh, do some of the conservative thought leaders have? Laura Ingram, I think, posted yesterday that she went from 3.85 million to about 4 million. She'd been stuck at about 3.85 hmm. million. Just a coincidence, I'm uh, sure. I think Tucker said he gained about 67 or 6. See, Tucker's on a one. Tucker's like Cher or Bono. You know what I mean? T Tucker's reached celebrity status. It's just one, one name yeah or a little bit like elon you know it's not elon yeah. musk any longer it's it's elvis and elon i mean these you know that's when you know you've arrived when people refer to you in a um kind of a singular a singular name but, but there are a lot of people on twitter people that are well known that have posted these statistics it shows the number of followers gained or lost by day and several of them just been losing a few, gaining a few, and the last day or two, their numbers just through the roof. So now, explain it, that. It'll be very interesting to watch how this sorts itself Brian out. Brian Kilmeade, I think, picked up 44,000 in half a day. Yeah, one of the interesting things that, um, that we do here is try to engage politicians so you can, or aspiring politicians, there you go, people who are uh, running for office, and um, we've got a treat for us this morning. Uh, Spencer Morris is with us. He is a, um, he is a candidate in the Republican primary for the 7th Congressional um, District. He's joined us this morning. Spencer, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, before I get to some questions I have for you, if you don't mind, I'll get out of the way and let you um, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and, and what you believe in. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, this is a very crowded primary, as uh, everyone knows. I'm one of uh, seven candidates. Uh, I'm uh, from the Georgetown area, Andrews originally. I've uh, lived in uh, the Congressional District 7 area, the PD region, uh, my entire life. I'm 44 years old. I'm invested in the area. I am a uh, pharmacist. I, I went to the University of uh, South Carolina, and then I completed uh, residency training uh, at the McLeod uh, Family Medicine Center in Florence. Uh, a lot of folks probably don't realize that uh, pharmacists can 
pursue uh, residencies uh, like physicians, but but we can. Um, and I've lived here uh, my whole life, except for my very first job was in Greenwood. I lived there for two years, had a great uh, teaching job, but uh, didn't like living in Greenwood. So I've been uh, back home in Georgetown since uh, 2004. Um, I represented uh, Congressional District 7 on the Board of Pharmacy from uh, 2013 to 2020. So I went on the board uh, the same time our incumbent congressman uh, started uh, in Washington. I served there for seven years, and I, I wouldn't say I caught the uh, political bug necessarily, but uh, I learned a lot about the uh, regulatory process and uh, public health policy, and uh, I discovered just how much politics is involved in every uh, aspect of, of our lives. And um, of course, when uh, I, I, I want this to be a positive conversation, but we need to discuss facts when, as everyone knows, uh, when Mr. Rice uh, made his controversial voting record, uh, it inspired me like it inspired a lot of people. But from the standpoint of me, just being a, an av average person looking at pursuing public office, usually the only way an average person can even think about a congressional run is if the incumbent retires or take some action to make them uh, make themselves unpopular with their constituency. So it inspired me, and uh, what I'd like people to, to think about is just look at the full gambit of, of candidates. You've got a lot of choices, and I think one of the reasons why we have so much gridlock in, in Congress is the historical voter base, is particularly conservatives, at least from my perspective, seem to be reluctant uh, to give uh, new candidates uh, a chance. So I'm just asking voters in the district to have an open mind, take a careful look at at all the candidates, and I, and I think they should vote for the candidate whose platform most clearly aligns with their values and concerns, whether that's me, whether that's Mr. Rice, whether that's anyone else in the race. I think voters should take some time uh, before June 14th and give it a lot of careful thought before they make their decision. Spencer, one thing interesting that you touched on, and I read your bio and some of the information you passed out, I grew up in Pamplico, rural America, is near and dear to my heart. This district, I think, really um, speaks to uh, the contrast. You've got Horry County growing as fast as any county in America. You've got a lot of the district uh, declining in population, offering less opportunity. Um, socioeconomics are a big part of this. Um, what responsibility does a congressman have as a conservative Republican um, to try and increase opportunity or better uh, the quality of life in some of these rural districts that, that I think you would agree are facing some pretty significant challenges? Oh, I agree. And, uh, Fully, and uh, you know, I, I have to say, Mr. Rice has, has done a great job on the on the uh, economic side, and I and I think uh, whether he stays or whoever takes his place, uh, you know, should continue uh, to foster uh, relationships for large companies like Boeing, for instance, when they came to Charleston. That was a huge win uh, for South Carolina. So definitely, um, I, I think whoever is in the congressional district seat needs to direct uh, federal dollars as much as they can uh, to our district to, to in increase uh, growth. Um, we need to focus on uh, tourism in the Horry County area. We need to bring back manufacturing uh, to our state. Uh, that's in my, uh, in my campaign platform, SpencerMorrisForCongress.com. I think we need a revival of manufacturing uh, jobs in our state, uh, especially in the rural areas, and, and whatever someone in that office can do to, to help that revival of manufacturing industries, I, I think they need to do it. You said a second ago that you were somewhat inspired 
um, when Tom Rice, when Congressman Rice made the vote. Uh, that's happened all over the country. You've got Republicans, uh, Liz Cheney in Wyoming comes to mind, obviously our own congressman. Um, Trump cuts both ways. I mean, you know that. There, there's kind of a debate within how much Trump is not enough, how much Trump is too much. Um, what do you make of the phenomenon that led to uh, a, a real estate developer and former former reality TV show host being such a prominent and commanding figure in the Republican Party? How did we end up here? As far as uh, Mr. Rice taking his vote, you mean? Well, I mean, as far as Trump being such a relevant political figure in one of our two major political parties, kind of the um, the guy that came from nowhere and now assumes the role as um, de facto party leader. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think uh, if Mr. Trump uh, did what a lot of politicians don't do is is he spoke his mind, and that's one of the things I uh, I really liked. You know, I have to confess I did not like his. Uh, prolific tweeting, but I also realized that the mainstream media wouldn't give him a fair chance. So I, I, I think we got to this point where uh, Mr. Trump, uh, he embraced uh, some of the conservative constituency's frustration. Again, with the with the deadlock in Congress, he was open, honest. He's, he, he spoke his mind. He spoke from the cuff. And uh, I, I think people like that, I think so often, uh, again, our, our representatives are more concerned about staying in office than saying what they need to say, than saying what might actually be on the mind of, of their constituents. And I think that's what Mr. Trump did. He spoke his mind, and a lot of people embrace that. A lot of folks um, enjoy visiting our coastline. If you're in Georgetown, that would be a part of this. I go through Georgetown on my way down there about every other weekend. So I certainly appreciate uh, not just the aesthetics of the coastline, but the value it adds to our our state economy. Infrastructure is always a challenge. In yes. my time at Columbia, it was always, can we do this? Why don't we do that? I-73 is kind of a federal issue. You still got state. What, what, what is your plan? I mean, if you're elected Congress, how do we um, improve um, getting people in and out of uh, Georgetown and Horry County because they are such a valuable tourism asset? Yes, sir, and I and I anticipated that uh, question was coming. The I seventy three question. Well, it's it, it's it's partly a philosophical question. Is it, is it actually an interstate? If it ever came to fruition, or is it a spur off of of I ninety five? And uh, I don't want to dodge the question, but I, I I think the decision before we even embark on that, as far as the level of a congressman, it has to be a decision made uh, by local leaders and state leaders. First, do we do it, or do we focus on improving the roads? That that we already have. You know, I, I think a, a lot more research needs to go into that before we, we, we in, in, uh, spend millions and millions of federal dollars for a uh, proposed interstate that may not actually be a, a formal interstate. What, what else is it going to connect to? So again, I'm not trying to dodge uh, the question, but I think a lot more thought needs to go into the process before we embark on that, or do we look at improving the roadways we already have? Uh, because that's a major uh, project, and it's been bogged down for a long time. A long time. So I, I think a lot more thought has to go into the process before we just build. There might be another. There might be an alternative solution. Sure, I've always felt that way as well. I, I got to ask you this: since you're a pharmacist, yeah. and we're talking about rural America, um, the the opioid epidemic has been com- uh, not not completely about rural America, but but when you look at the percentages and you look at the uh, the contrast of opioid addiction in urban 
uh, America as opposed to rural America. J.D. Vance in Ohio running as a Senate campaign Mm -hmm. has made the opioid epidemic and addressing that in rural America a big part of his campaign. Uh, As as a pharmacist who grew up in rural South Carolina, what are some things the government can do to to help um, these rural communities work through not just the opioid epidemic but, but the drug epidemic in general? Well, that's a two-part question. So what do you mean by the, the, the drug epidemic in general in addition to opioids? So well, I mean, that, as a pharmacist, I would imagine prescription drugs is something I would, um, I would imagine you'd have a much better opinion of uh, than some of the, um, you know, the, the marijuana and cocaine and yeah. some of the cartel and trafficking. Uh, you know, some, some of these pharmaceutical companies have settled and, and agreed that they misled the American public about the, right. the addictive nature of the drug. Yes. Are there things the government can do to make sure we don't screw that up again? Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's investing more in, in education uh, from the prescriber level and the patient level to look at alternatives instead of uh, just going immediately uh, for opioids. In my view, a, a, an opioid prescription in some cases is a band-aid, so to speak, for a bigger problem. Why does why does that person need the opioid? Uh, is it is it covering up something else uh, underneath, or is what what is the the source of the pain? Treating the source of the pain. In some cases, opioids are used for depression and and, and other issues rather than than chronic pain. So I, I think at the federal level, a lot more education uh, could be done. Um, for prescribers uh, to look at a comprehensive atr- approach uh, to, to pain. It's, 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 not, it's a difficult question to answer because you may or may not be aware Americans use more opioids than anybody else uh, in the world. Uh, so it is, it is an epidemic. There, there is no easy answer, but I, I think the first step is more education and looking at alternatives and, instead of opioids. Okay. Uh, I want to get out of the way. I'll, I'll give you a chance to give your um, your wrap-up, so to speak, to our listeners. Um, Spencer Morris is a true conservative Republican. The citizens of Congressional District 7 can count on his words, uh, not mine. But I'll get out of the way and let you um, solicit support from our audience of listeners here in the PD region. All right. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll try to wrap up in just a, a couple of minutes. Uh, and again, I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, appreciate your questions. Um, tried to answer them to the best of my ability. Did a great uh, job. Did a great yeah. job. You asked some difficult questions, but uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's what we're here for, right? You want to be a congressman, you got to be ready to answer some difficult questions. And, I, and I appreciate the sincerity of which you went about it. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. So and, and just the next couple of minutes again, um, as I said, uh, it, this has been difficult for me. Uh, it's been uh, an education for me. Uh, one of the hardest parts is uh, is fundraising. I'm, I'm not a natural fundraiser. Uh, I don't ever want to be, to be quite frank. I, I think politics should not be about all about uh, the money. Um, and again, I appreciate the opportunity you've extended me. Um, so if anything, I... Uh, I want folks to to look at uh, me running uh, and get inspiration, not from me personally uh, as a person, but just just the fact that that I've done it uh, pretty much uh, on my own without without any campaign uh, staff. And uh, I'd like people to know that if you want to run for office, if I can do it, you can do it. I've uh, I've made it this far. Um, I am disappointed, and I have to be honest, uh, that uh, I am disappointed that the district leaders, in my opinion, are focusing on money as far as uh, opportunities, as you're aware, that I'm not being included in the debate uh, next week, and, and I wish I was, but uh, the 
participation was based on campaign funds raised, and uh, I just can't compete with people who have been uh, campaigning uh, for more than a year. I'm working full-time uh, as a hospital pharmacist as I'm pursuing this. But uh, the last uh, thought I want to give voters is everyone knows this, is, this whole election will be a referendum on Mr. Rice's controversial uh, voting record, and, uh, and I think the race should be kept classy. I've, uh, I've met Mr. Rice personally in Florence uh, a couple of weeks ago at the Florence County Republican Party meeting, but uh, again, I want voters to keep an open mind and, and not go uh, with the status quo, uh, and I would like voters to consider that uh, Mr. Rice has shown with his recent voting record that he's going to vote the way he wants to, uh, regardless of constituent sentiment, uh, regardless of, of their anger. And he's also said recently at an Horry County um, town hall meeting that uh, he believes 12 years uh, in Congress, two terms as a senator, six terms as a representative. Well, according to his math, this would be his last two years. And just based on the fact that his voting record of if past behavior is any predictor of future behavior, that means if Mr. Rice is given another two years, he would likely have very little accountability to voters in his last two years. So I, I'm just asking that voters look at the candidates that are running and uh, give someone else the opportunity. Is there a website, a phone number, an email address if someone wants to communicate or, or contact you? Absolutely. Spencer Morris for Congress dot com. Uh, anyone can reach me at Spence a morris at gmail.com or uh, uh, constituents are free to call me my number is 843-833-2256 okay we will post that information on our website mike if you don't mind let's let's okay it's posted now so if anybody heard the interview wants to support be a part uh contribute to his campaign um, we've put mr morris's information on our facebook page and uh, and i wish you well sir thank you very much for your time thank you very much as well there you go, Spencer Morris, a candidate um, for Congressional District Number 7. Kind of an interesting uh, back and forth mm-hmm. there. I thought he acquitted himself uh, very well, extremely well. But we do have a very crowded field and um, in, in deference to the voters. And, and, you know, I guess we were all a part of this decision-making process. Uh, nobody likes to leave anybody out, but we want the public to be served. And I understand Mr. Morris's frustration. I certainly understand his frustration I expected uh, a bit more pushback than that. I think he was very respectful to, um, you know, the the process and decisions that came out of the process. I mean, if I were being left out of a debate, invited to be on a a talk radio show, I would have probably not lasted as long (laughs) as he did. Um, So I think he respected um, us and what we do here. But, you know, seven candidates, it's hard to get. Um, it's hard to do with five. I mean, it really is in a couple of hours because the public needs to understand where are you on some of these seminal issues. And with seven people on stage, it's hard to get there. Uh, it gets confusing. It gets uh, you, you don't get enough questions asked. Uh, we met yesterday, and I'm moderating the debate. Uh, when somebody from MBF asked me, how many questions do you anticipate? I said, well, I've tried to count backwards from the end of the debate to the beginning. It looks to me like six questions. I mean, I'd love to get answer, ask you to 10 or 12, but, but timing is going to be crucial to this. Three minutes to answer a question. If you're a politician work, worth your ilk, you're going, you're going to use your three minutes. I mean, you're going, you know, what's the price of eggs in China? Now, government's too big, spends too much money. I mean, <laughs> you, you already got your answer. Sure. I mean, there, there has to be a lot of that um, 
I don't know, political posturing as part of the debate. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I understand his frustration. I certainly understand uh, his frustration and anybody else that may be left out of this debate. But, but we've done the best we know how at making sure the public is served. And the, um, the five we've concluded, and I didn't, you know, set the metric. Somebody else did. But, but I think we're going to abide by, and I think it's probably the best thing. I just say it's the right thing. I mean, I don't know what right and wrong is. It's the best thing to do for you to better understand who these candidates are and what their positions are. And I've tried to really um, think through some of these questions, but because it is a it is a debate that we probably wouldn't even be having had a congressman not taken a very controversial vote. Now, I've talked to someone in Horry County who tells me that there was somebody in the field today that will be on the debate stage Thursday night was going to run uh, irrespective. Didn't matter. I mean, it didn't matter if Rice took that vote or not. This candidate believed that it was time for a change, and he was going to run uh, regardless. Now, now, don't have any idea the accuracy or not of that, um, but I've heard it from multiple sources. But but it's interesting. You've got an incumbent. You you've got a um, you, you've got a chairman of a school board. You've got a sitting house member. You've got a um, a female from the inland who has a political um, activist past. I mean, it, it, you've got a lot of things kicking here. But but the the elephant in the room, no pun intended, being a Republican <laughs> debate, the elephant in the room is the vote. I see what you. I mean, there. it's the vote. I mean, it's it's simply it's not all about the vote, but it's largely about you know a sitting congressman, a Republican incumbent votes with the Democrats to impeach a Republican president. Can he get away with that? That To me, that's the most intriguing part of this political analysis. Can a Republican congressman who voted to impeach a Republican president who has an approval rating north of 85% in the congressional district uh, explain himself to the voters in a way that allows him to get reelected? That is the dynamic we're all a part of. And a little bit of the housekeeping here, just uh, for for listeners that are interested. Uh, the debate is next Thursday, May 5th, 7 to 9 p.m. It will be live from the Francis Marion University Performing Arts Center in downtown Florence. The audio of the debate will be carried on live 95.3 in the Florence and PD area. Uh, the video of the debate will be on WMBF News Live. They'll have it live on the television uh, for the first hour, and then NBC goes to primetime coverage, and the second hour will continue um, online only. A great Television is making this uh, debate video also available to their affiliates throughout the state of South Carolina and I believe nationally as well. And there's a lot of interest in this. So we want to thank Schofields Hardware, by the way. Schofields is our title presenting sponsor for the radio broadcast. Thank them so much for presenting uh, the event, and and we'll be looking forward to, to hopefully having a great and entertaining show and uh, and you as the moderator. There you go. Well said. Thank you, Ref. Yeah. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 or 1-866-TELL-KEN. You don't tell Yano what to tell. You don't tell Mike what to tell Ken. You, you get on the phone and tell the yeah, audience, get on the air. tell our listeners it's an uh, what on, we think is going on to happen. I uh, wanted to mention, too, uh, as it relates to the debate, um, first of all, there, there are the tickets. There, we, we said at the beginning there would be public tickets available. Now, those went as soon as they went uh, available at the, the, 
the FMU PAC box office. Uh, I heard yesterday when we were having our meeting that there may be a few tickets released, and when and if that happens, we'll let you know if you're interested in attending. But I believe the public tickets have all been already picked up and spoken for. But as it relates to the race, uh, do you care to give us your thoughts on how things are stacking up and how you see it playing out? Well, I still think it's about the you know the vote. I mean, I, you know, can Tom Rice, an incumbent congressman, well-funded, um, will have more money than anybody else in this race? Um, he's putting out a positive message. He's running on his record. Um, he's basically touting what he's done in the 10 years he's been in Congress, but there's this one vote and, and he's got to overcome that. You know, can he, I don't know. Um, Kahaley said Friday, he didn't think so. It's a, um, it's not a plurality election. JD Vance's election, Elizabeth Cheney's election are pluralities. There, there's not a runoff. I mean, if you get 36% of the vote and somebody else got 33 or four, you can win that seat. Um, will over half of the Republican primary voters in district seven, South Carolina district seven, um, forgive or, or, or approve of, you know, Tom Ross voting to impeach Donald Trump. Here's the, uh, remember, I always tell you uh, politics is math. Well, here's the math. Um, Donald Trump approval rating amongst Republican primary voters in the 7th Congressional District is in the neighborhood of 85. I mean, it's been as high as 91 or 2, but it's in the neighborhood of 95. Excuse me, 85. Um, Will someone who supports Trump vote for a candidate who voted to impeach Trump? I don't know the answer to that. You said you won't. I mean, you, you've yeah, been very candid. Right. You've been on the record, and you're yeah. not, it's not personal with you. No. But, but you just feel like you're breaking ranks. That's, I think you've set a bridge too far. I think when yep. Cato was here, it was a bridge too far. How many of those are there, and how many of those are there not? That's the fundamental question here. Can a Republican Congress member who voted to impeach a Republican president who is wildly popular in the congressional district he seeks reelection convince the people that that was just one vote? I've been with Trump 90% of the time. I am a conservative Republican. Um, I've brought economic development. I've governed effectively and efficiently. I'm on the ways and means. Um, I've gained some influence in Washington. D- does that carry the day, or is it the litmus test? The one vote is unforgivable. I don't know the answer to that. I've spoken to people who tell me, I wish Tom hadn't done that, but I'm still voting for Tom because I think he's been a good congressman. I have some tell me I'll never vote for him again. That's a bridge too far. And um, and how many of those are in each camp? Don't know. The one thing that, that um, Representative Fry has to do, and I think this plays into the J.D. Vance model, it's, it's, it's not just enough to be endorsed by Trump. Do you have the money and the horsepower to get the word out? Russell Fry is now a Trump-endorsed candidate. There are a lot of people that won't vote for Russell because he's, um, I mean, so, so if Trump's approvals, let's just hypothetically say Trump's approvals are 80%. Maybe he's 20% don't approve of Trump. So if, if people were a little bit sympathetic to Russell and all of a sudden he gets the Trump endorsement, that there could be some shrinkage there, what we call political leakage. I mean, he leaked some voters there. But, um, but if you take or not the Trump endorsement, of course you take it. I mean, the numbers are overwhelming. I mean, it legitimized, I think Russell was a legitimate candidate before then, um, but it really gave the stamp of legitimacy to a guy that's challenging an incumbent. I'm not saying it's a single uh, issue election, but it kind of is. And I think I would be derelict in my duty. I mean, I'll let the cat out of the bag. I think I'm derelict. I mean, if any candidates are listening, here it comes. I, I think I'm not doing the job expected of me if we don't begin the debate. 
about that central issue. I mean, let's not let's not sidestep. Let's not dance around. Mm-hmm. One candidate on this stage voted to impeach. Four candidates say um, he should not have done that. Why did you impeach? And why do you say he shouldn't have? And, and I don't want to. I don't want to because Trump's approvals are eighty-five. I mean, let's do better than that. You, you, you're asking to be a member of Congress. I mean, I'm going to come prepared. I would encourage you. I would strongly encourage you candidates to come prepared as well, because I'm not asking softball questions. I mean, this is not, you know, Chuck Todd running interference for the Democrats. I mean, I want Republican um, candidates to be held accountable on serious issues that affect this district. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Betty in Florence. Hello, Betty. Uh, good morning, Dave, and uh, good morning, Ken. Hey, Betty. Um, I want to say that um, I'm going to vote for Tom. Um, I wasn't to start with, but uh, I really feel like this. Tom has been a great congressman. He's done what he said he's going to do, and I don't know why he uh, voted to impeach Donald Trump, but that don't even bother me. I want somebody that's going to work for me. And, Ken, the more you down, Tom, the, the more people are voting for him. I didn't, I'm not, Betty, I'm sorry. What, what did I do to down, Tom? Well, you're constantly throwing up about impeaching um, uh, the president. and uh, let's, It's a fact. Let's it's let's, a fact, Betty. I mean, he impeached President it, Trump. It's a fact. But let him explain why he did. I don't owe any of these candidates anything. I don't owe Russell anything. I don't owe um, Barbara Arthur anything. I don't owe Tom Rice anything. My, my debt is to you, the listeners. And if a guy's running for re-election who voted to impeach a guy who has a 85% approval rating, I mean, I'm not doing my job if I skirt around that and not make it and the central I, issue of this campaign. Another, another thing, Ken, um... I'm praying that Donald Trump does not run because we've got DeSantos in Florida who will make a better president. If, and I'm, I'm hoping he's going to run because Donald Trump will keep us in the past. He will never let us forget that the, the election was stolen. And he will keep us in the past. Let him work for the party, but don't let him run. Because I will—I'm a staunch Republican, and I will never vote for Donald Trump again. But I'm gonna tell you, the more you—I mean, you don't realize how you sound on the radio because you can tell on the radio when somebody's smiling, when they're gritting their teeth, or whatever. And you are against Tom Rice because I think because he's made a good uh, congressman. Thank you, but, Betty. Appreciate that. Appreciate the call. Um, I'm trying not, to figure out if she was smiling or gritting her teeth when she was calling. This <laughs> I morning. don't know. I mean, Betty. Betty expresses herself. I mean, she said she'll never vote for Trump sure. again, and she'll vote for Tom Rice. I mean, that, that's yeah. her position. She's certainly entitled uh, to that position, just as I'm entitled and responsible to engage our listeners where the election is. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody has any idea, and I'm not going to go down this road very far. Uh, I talk to Tom's people a lot. I don't hold any grudge at all against anybody in this race. Um, America first is in my bones. It's my political ideology today. It's something I passionately believe in. And whether you like it or not, Trump is a big part of America first. He ushered in an acceptance of kind of an anti-globalist Republican Party. So so I am bothered, 
when someone insults that movement. I've, I've said it a hundred times, and and now may be an appropriate time to say it again. I'm I'm not as big a Donald Trump fan as I am an America Firster. I mean, I, I am an Amer. I'm tired of both political parties making as their priority the political and establishment class. I mean, this is that is the the crux of my political philosophizing today. Give me a candidate that I believe I can trust to advance the plot of working class Americans. I've said more than one time, I think Liz Cheney is anti-America first. I think she is a globalist at heart. I think she believes that America is best when run by an intelligentsia and the elitist and, and the establishment. I think she sincerely believes that. I mean, look who raised her. I mean, the Bush doctrine is very globalist in nature. Um, she may be right. The country may be better off when run by highbrow globalists and industrialists and corporate executives. I don't believe it is, but, but we can have that fundamental debate. But I've said a hundred times, I don't think Tom Rice is anti-America first. But he voted to impeach the guy that a lot of people have placed that their, their good faith in. And that is Donald Trump. And I'm not, you know, we're always debating what is enough Trump, what is not, you know, not enough Trump, what is too much Trump. I think DeSantis embodies that. I think DeSantis is a manifestation of trying to figure out what is enough Trump, what is too much Trump, um, what is just the right amount of Trump. And I'm with Betty. I think DeSantis gives us a better chance of winning in 2024 than Trump does. I think Trump could very easily be elected president again in 2024. I think DeSantis gives us an even better chance to get a Republican in the White House in 2024. But I can't, I mean, it's not for me to tell Donald Trump whether to run or not. It's not for me to tell Tom Rice whether to run or not. I mean, I've had a number of conversations with Congressman Rice and his team about what I see and the lay of the land and how I feel about these things and those things. I mean, and the only reason, guys, the only reason I have any credibility is because of you. I mean, it's opening the phone line, just having these conversations with Betty and with, with, with someone trying to run for that seat who feels a bit slighted and they weren't allowed to be a part of this debate. I mean, we have become, you guys have really um, created this. We become a, a prominent political voice. I mean, what we talk about in the morning matters to Tom Rice or to Barbara Arthur, or to Ken Richardson or to Russell Fry. Um, they're paying attention to the conversations we have because you reflect the mood and sentiment of the people they need to cast a ballot in their name. So, so I, I just think, I mean, it, it, I don't worry about fairness. I mean, the fair comes in October. I mean, it doesn't matter to me what's fair or not. But, um, but I have, I mean, I've had multiple conversations recently with, with some of Rice's people about what I see and what, what I suspect. I talk to Russell from time to time about things I see. Um, Barbara and Arthur and I Facebooked. Uh, you know, a couple of times about, you know, um, I'm not saying I give advice, but because I speak to a large audience of, by and large, Republican voters, I, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of where you are and what you believe. And and look, I've never said that we're here, um, we're, we're duly gathered to all agree one with another and advance our common cause. No, we're here to discuss things and debate things and at times argue about things. That's the beauty of what, if there's any, uh, I don't know if there's any method to the madness, I mean, it's that. So, yeah, I mean, certainly Betty's entitled 
helped her. I'm not going to be mad with Betty. Betty helped me a lot when I ran for office. <laughs> I mean, she was really a supporter of mine and uh, and very much supportive of us. So, so We've I, always I, said all opinions are welcome. Sure. <laughs> Twitter should be more like us, Absolutely. don't you Absolutely. No question about it. Look, I didn't uh, agree to host and moderate a debate in the Senate seat because I'd, I'd chosen a horse in that. I don't have a dog in this fight. Um, you know, let, let those guys and ladies decide who's the last person standing at the end of the primary. Let's go to the phone. Carol in Marion. Hi, Carol. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, Carol. Good morning. Um, so for me, it's not necessarily that that Tom Rice voted to impeach Trump. It's the fact that he didn't allow the due process. He didn't allow an investigation. He didn't even ask for an investigation. He voted with his feelings instead of his head. And that, to me, tells me that he is a little impulsive. And I don't want that for a congressman. That's not a good thing. You Thanks. want someone that thinks their way through a vote. Thank you very much. I mean, a good reason to vote for Ross, a good reason to not vote for Ross. I mean, this is the, um, we're not Twitter. We're not the, the, the digital de facto public square. But I would imagine we are the biggest universe of uh, Republican uh, voters who gather every morning to discuss whatever it is we choose to discuss. 843-661-0937. Let's take a break, and then we'll come back to our call on the other side. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Lisa in Aiken. Good morning, Lisa. morning, guys. I was just going to back up on the other phone call, and I— totally agree with the second lady that called about Tom Rice's vote on Trump, but I would go a little bit further and say it's, to me, it's way beyond impulsivity. When you look at the evil and the corruption that's taken over D.C. today, if we don't put patriotic, constitutionalist, conservatives in D.C., we're, we're doomed. And it's obvious to me that Rice doesn't have the courage needed. He, he caved to the pressure because the pressure up there now is probably worse than it's been in decades, and it's been growing for decades. And that's why we cannot allow people that aren't going to follow the Constitution and be dedicated to our freedoms to be up there. And I'm just going to hang up and listen. And I'm really sad that I didn't get a ticket. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Appreciate <laughs> that. We should have some sort of, uh, I don't know, I just think, that there, there are people who are so important to what we do here. All of you are important, but but the callers, the ones that take the, the the I don't know, the chance and the risk of putting their name out there, putting their opinion out there in the public square. I mean, if I were in charge, I'd have some sort of scoring system. I'm not in charge. Therefore, it's easy for me to say what I'd do if I were in charge. <laughs> but if I were in charge, mm-hmm. I'd have a scoring system that rewarded people who are um, more dedicated than others. I mean, voters are voters are voters. The public is the public is the public. But we've had three female callers um, consecutively express um, a little bit different opinions. I think Betty said yes to Rice. Uh, the last two ladies said no to Rice for a, um, I don't know, different reasons. But but you, I mean, it's in your hands. I mean, it's in your hands. I mean, I, you know, I've got to vote. Dave's got to vote. Uh, Mike, I don't know if you've uh, registered to vote here yet. Or, okay, he's got to vote here. So there's three of us. There are millions and millions and millions of you listening to our voice um, every morning. You will decide the fate and future of this election. We're going to play a part in it Thursday by hosting a debate. And um, and I'm very comfortable moderating 
I mean, I, I, I am, I have no problem at all um, believing, knowing that I am completely unbiased in this. Uh, when I was asked about the Rick and Bob J. Jordan, I said, I can't do that. Why can't you do it? Because I don't think I can be fair. Uh, I've chosen a horse. That's unfair to the voters. If, if a guy hosting a debate is, is supporting one or the other candidate, how legitimate is the debate? And I've been very careful to not support any candidate in this race because I think this is an interesting exercise in political science. I mean, it's, it's so interesting to me, and I probably talk more to Robert Cahaley about it than I do any other candidates or people affiliated or associated with the campaign. But I want you to understand, guys, the only reason campaigns reach out to me at the local level is because of you. I'm not a political genius by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I got thrown out of offices. Geniuses don't get thrown out of political office. But but you folks, uh, you and I engage every morning in debate and dialogue. And out of that comes a, a better understanding of where the electorate is or are. Take a break. Back in a minute. We care about what you say if you say what we want you to say. We don't care about you if you say things that we don't. No, I'm kidding. Oh, the, the beauty of this, the beauty of this, is to be allowed to say whatever it is you choose uh, to say on Twitter. You can do that now, because um, finally, because Elon Musk is now the uh, not now, but he will be as soon as the wire transfers, uh, as soon as the money it's transfers. Just a coincidence that things have started to change, and uh, these conservative viewers or conservative users have picked up uh, followers on Twitter. Just uh, coincidentally, but, but over you last would agree of days. with me. Well, you would agree with me when I say that he, we happen to be. Uh, ships in the night. We cross paths with one another. Um, Elon Musk is on not this, a conservative. On this horse. issue, I mean, he did not spend. He didn't spend one of every four dollars he has to his name, and he got a bunch uh, in the name of liberating conservatism and allowing opinions to be um, uh, articulated on a social media site uh, fairly and equally. Uh, we just happen to be on his team in this one. It, it would be interesting to find out what he does have in mind. I'm telling you, Rev, when, when we I said learn. it this morning, trust me on this. So when a car gets in a bog, I mean, in case you don't know, that's a ditch. I was going to say. Okay, you, what's a bog? You, you said that this morning. I was going to ask you what that was. Well, when, when, when a car gets, when a car in the country runs in a ditch, he's bogged down. Okay. Um, so when a car runs into the country, uh, in a ditch of the country, and he's bogged down, me and a bunch of good old boys go try to get the car out of the ditch. If Elon Musk is with us, He's trying to invent a ditch or a car that can't, you know, meet one another. In other words, can I build a car that uh, doesn't bog down in a ditch or can I build a ditch that doesn't? I mean, he thinks in a visionary entrepreneurial way that very few people can. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a gift. I mean, he's a genius. So, so his idea is how can I keep this car from getting in a bog? Yeah. Can, can, he, he would think. That's how he'd say it. Can That's we how build a bog-proof car? I see. That's how he would say it. Say it. I, I misspoke yesterday. I mean, every time I misspeak, I'm corrected. But if I say something, I think I argued a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, that um, Nixon was impeached. And he was not. He resigned before right. he was impeached. That's right. And, um, you know, you get called out. So so I said that Teal and Musk went to Stanford. That's technically correct because they went to Stanford. Musk stayed at Stanford about as long as I stayed at Wofford. <laughs> so so <laughs> uh, a half a cup of coffee. And um, at Walford for me, and a half a cup of coffee at Stanford. I think you end up going to UPenn. But um, academically, and you know, I, he could have gone anywhere he wanted to go, but he went to Stanford. It didn't work out. Pete Teal graduated from Stanford, and that's where they met. That's where Teal and Stanford, uh, Teal and um, and Musk met was um, the brief period of time 
that Elon yeah. spent at um at Stanford. Oh, thanks for correcting that. Yeah, well, I mean, I want to make sure I correct. If I'm not, somebody will correct That's me. That's right. Uh, That's rest right. assured. Yeah, somebody did point uh, out the that, thing about Nixon, and I was wrong. I mean, I, you know, yeah. but I, I talked for four hours, five days a week. Um, and I didn't even catch it when you said I'm, it. I'm going to be, I kind of did when I left here, I'm going like, okay, what did I get wrong today? Uh, that, this, this, cause there's a handful of things that you, you don't intentionally misspeak, but you just kind of like, well, I, I probably should have said it a different way. But I did say that Nixon was impeached. In fact, he was, he resigned, uh, but it was an impending, uh, impeachment coming. So, so I've reached out to a couple of buddies of mine. I hope they don't mind me calling them buddies. Um, not at all. But uh, Brian Braddock on city council, William Schofield of city council have agreed to come on this morning. And I got real aggressively opinionated about crime. And we've had a lot of callers call about weekend crime. this past week. Well, I mean, we, we've, we've had a bad run. We've had a bad stretch here. And I'm tired of blue ribbon committees. And I'm tired of, you know, um, the, the, the political speak. People are tired of that. So I asked these two guys to come in. And, uh, and I know they, that they share my concern because they've expressed it to me privately how how that they are that they know something's wrong and we got to shift gears and, and change whatever it is that's leading to all this crime in our in our part of the state our, our city our county uh brian i'll start with you you're kind of mm-hmm. nodding your head there um i don't want to say brian braddock what are you going to do about this crime but you did accept the responsibility as a member of city council and we do have a problem that yeah. needs to be addressed i want to give you credit and i mean this sincerely you're the guy that sat in this studio and said everything's not okay as a candidate for mayor. What well, we talked about crime then, why aren't we doing certain things to address the crime? Well, that's exactly right. You know, I want to I want to take a, a page out of Dr. O'Malley's book. He has taken action. And that's where Florence has failed. We have not taken action. We've we've made excuses. We can't hire police officers, you know, we we can't do this, we can't do that. We're going to have to do things that are uncomfortable you know, and, and that people, you know, are resistant to having a zero tolerance policy. You see where uh, Senator uh, Harputlian and the governor just agreed that, you know what, if you have an illegal firearm, no bond, you know, it should be a felony instead of a misdemeanor. You know, we, we got to have a zero tolerance. But, you know, he made a plan and, I, and now he's putting in um, uh, metal detectors. You know, if children don't feel safe, if they don't feel like you're going to protect them, they're going to have to protect themselves. And so he's taking action. Same thing with citizens. They don't feel safe. They feel like they have to protect themselves. So I think I talked to the city manager and I said, you know, we need to reach out to the FBI, some consultant group, and we need to get a plan. We need to figure out what we're going to do. If we're looking at economic development, we develop a plan. We, we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, the city and the county, on comprehensive plans for infrastructure, for growth economic development we don't have a community engaged plan for crime that involves city council county council our state local legislatures you know the superintendent of education our pastors our community leaders and until we get a comprehensive plan that everyone buys into we're not going to address this issue you know people say that it is the morality of today's society you know you know all we got to do is pray about it. And, and, you know, I agree. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name will return unto me, I'll, I will heal their voice and heal their land. You know, but faith without works is dead. Yes, we got to pray. Yes, we need, you know, the changing of hearts. But we have got to take action as a community. The police, they, they address crime when it happens. 
But until we come together, and if we can't come together on this, Ken, if, if, if city council and county council can't get in the same room and work on this issue together, then, then hope for us really is lost because, you know, economically speaking, we talk about growth and things, but, but Florence has a felony on its resume, and, and I know about that. It doesn't matter what your education is when you got a felony. It doesn't matter what your work history is when you got a felony, your, your, your experience. It doesn't matter all the good things about you. Until we address this crime issue, you know, and it's going to take a community working together to expunge our record. And that's what I'm calling for. William, I'll let you jump in. I mean, I don't know if I asked Brian a question, but but just the, the same argument, the same commentary um, as a member of city council, um, share your thoughts and opinions. Sure. I mean, but the first question we probably need to ask is, was this weekend's events enough to open everyone's eyes that there is a problem? I mean, just was that yesterday evening we had an armed robbery at a Dollar General here in Florence County, but yet here we are, are we going to become proactive instead of reactive? Um, and that's across the board. It's not just with crime, but I mean, why are our law enforcement officers underfunded and underpaid, leaving us short staffed and putting a further strain on our community? I mean, we can't expect them to be there for us. If we can't be there for them, they're going to leave and go to other agencies. Um, we're short staffed. We need more staff. We got to pay them correctly. Is when it comes to, I mean, I, I've heard the concern of law enforcement um, and, and we're kind of meddling in somebody else's business, but I want to get your take on this. Um, I mean, you don't set bond. I don't set bond. I don't, I don't appoint a magistrate. You don't appoint a magistrate. I don't hire a judge or, or elect a judge or appoint a judge, but, but is there, is there something we can do as leaders? And I guess to some degree, I have a, a public role in this. I'm not an elected official. You guys are. But I think together, applying pressure to some of the elements of, of sentencing requirements and guidelines. I mean, I, Brian, I'll go back to you here for a second. Is that something, I mean, I hear from a lot of people in law enforcement, the, the degree of frustration, the level of frustration. We, we, we find the bad guy. We arrest the bad guy. And the judicial system puts the bad guy right back out on the street. What can we do to apply pressure to, to force these people to make different opinions than what they have historically and traditionally made? Well, we got to hold them accountable. You know, it's disheartening. The gentleman who shot his 11-year-old nephew got out on a PR, PR bond. bond. A PR bond. <laughs> you know, the, the guy who, who all the guys with uh, illegal firearms in the Columbia Animal one of them was out on bond the next day, you know, with an ankle bracelet. We've got to hold them accountable. And to hold our magistrates in, uh, accountable, you got to hold our state legislature accountable because they're appointing them. You know, you need a minimum. But is that the plan, Brian? I mean, when you talk about a plan, you're right. We mm-hmm. have a plan for this and a plan for that. But but we, we, we just kind of, um well, I can't do anything about that because I'm not a senator. I can't do anything about that because I'm not a solicitor. But, but the truth is... Uh, I think both of you agree. We have a crime problem in Florence that is not being addressed mm-hmm. as we speak. Someone has to take a leadership role and responsibility and, and begin thinking about the, the, this comprehensive plan that will make Florence safer. Absolutely. You know, people's voice, people say, well, what can I do about it? That gentleman in Columbia, and I use that term loosely, but they got a bond. Facebook exploded. He ended up back in front of the court, and and then he didn't get a bond. You know, he ended up being arrested again. 
you got a voice. But, yes, someone in the community has got to take the lead. You talk about the politics of it really is what screws it up, too, because everybody wants to have credit. Everybody runs against crime, you know, and then, you know, when it comes to it, county doesn't want to work with, you know, the mayor because, you know, who's going to take credit? Everybody wants to take credit. We've got to have a group, a, a community group that's going to push the issue. You know what I mean? That's going to be a voice. And like Schofield said, are we tired of it? Are, are we ready to actually make some change? You know, it. if not now, when? You have four shootings in a weekend. William, to, to your point about funding and, and, and law enforcement pay, what needs to happen? I mean, procedurally, what needs to happen? I mean, is it the budgeting? Do we amend the budget? Do we come up um, at the next council meeting, whether it's city or council, city police officers or county sheriff department? I mean, um, logistically, how do we support law enforcement to the degree that you think we need to support them? Well, the budgets would need to be amended, but um, let's just give you a a reference. Uh, A veteran in the sheriff's office, okay, for multiple years has rank. Okay, makes the same as a city police officer starting out from the academy. That's not okay. These guys lay their lives on the lines for us every single day. Um, so yeah, we, we've got to take a deep, hard look at it. And you know, jumping back over to the judicial side of it, you know, Ken, that really starts with all of us at the ballot box. I mean, who we choose to be elected is who appoints these people. So how do we start? I mean, how do we begin? If, if we're trying here today to be an impetus or, or a genesis or, or the, um, the catalyst to get to a safer Florence, I mean, I can't solve the problem. You can't solve the problem. Together, we, we got to apply pressure in places and, and, and probably risk some political capital and some personal, rep, uh, some personal reputation. I mean, let, let's be candid here that there are people out there that don't want to change certain things. Um, I think you said it, Brian, if this isn't enough to suggest strongly we need something different, then nothing will. I'm more than willing to try to be a catalyst in making public some of these issues. But but once again, I don't um, I don't dart the halls of Congress. I don't go to Columbia anymore. I'm not on city council. I'm not on on county council. The reason I reached out to you two guys is because you've expressed an interest to me in being a leader. In, in addressing these in a formal and informal capacity. So, so I mean, I guess I'm asking, um, what can the public do now to apply pressure in these places that really and truly don't look kindly nor fondly to having pressure, pressure applied? Well, I say that they put pressure on us to work together. I think we start by getting a member of city council, members of county council, the school superintendent, the solicitor, Um, religious leaders, community leaders to form a committee and to seek out someone to come in a third party to, to come up with a plan, to give us a plan that includes every aspect we, we need to, you know, Florence is a metropolitan area. We need the mayor. We need Curtis Boyd in Darlington. Darlington represents the crime rate of Florence. We need that committee. We need a third party plan. And then we need to facilitate that plan and, and in facilitating that plan, the community is going to have to get involved. Neighborhood crime watches, you know, um, people are going to have to be willing to, to, to identify people and identify crimes going on in their neighborhood. 
but they don't feel safe to do that. But once the plan is in place, then the community will be a huge part of that. How do we replace madrasets? I mean, I know how they're appointed. They're appointed by the senator. I mean, the senator appoints the magistrate. Chief magistrate kind of directs what the other magistrates do. I mean, if we've got a situation, um, you're talking about bond. Shoot an 11-year-old kid and get out on a PR bond. I mean, somebody made a mistake there. Somebody needs to be held accountable there. Not personal with me. I don't know who that person is that set that bond, but something's wrong there. I mean, you know, we don't need a comprehensive study to understand that someone who shoots an 11-year-old kid doesn't deserve to get out on a PR bond that or the, the, the very next That's day. That's common sense. Well, well, they need, sure, absolutely They need is. to report who that judge was. The judge's name isn't in the article. You know, I, I was talking to another legislature uh, yesterday. They didn't know who it was. We were like, who is this judge? You know, and um, Schofield's done some research, found out some judges. But we don't, we don't put these judges and these magistrates um, out there for their actions. We don't hold them accountable. There, there's no pushback. We need to know. You, you, you need to report. This judge did this. They were appointed by this person this many years ago. Over the last 10 years, their record has been to give bonds to all these things. Their record needs to be exposed. Our record's exposed. Well, Our record. We're, we're, you know, you guys have to be careful. I don't. We're dancing around the reality. The reality is certain mm-hmm. people aren't doing their job. Exactly. I mean, it's as simple as that. Certain people yeah. aren't doing their job, and those people who aren't doing their job need to be replaced. You can, you can I mean, take it a, a step let's further, find too, people, Okay, take it you, a step you further. You can take it a step further. You know, here I am talking about how our law enforcement is underfunded. Uh, if you want to attract good magistrates, I mean, that's not an easy job. You get death threats and everything else from trying to be a judge. Well, you realize how but important a it, job is it, when you let a, somebody It's a very it. important job, and, and they've got a lot of weight on their shoulders, and there's a lot of people that— they're not going to be willing to do that job, especially if they're not paid accordingly. And let's the, the good magistrates let's celebrate their good decisions. Let let's let's tell the public how good a job they're doing. Let let's look at a track record of metrics and measurables that say, hey, this person deserves to be a magistrate. They take that job very seriously and they do the job in a very serious fashion. These others who believe it's just a political favor from a friend 20 years ago, let's get rid of their ass. Right. I mean, they don't need to be in that position. I'm sorry. There's too much at risk here. And guys, we're losing our community. I mean, this we can argue about what road or what ditch or whether stormwater runs off. I mean, I'm thinking of your dad when I think of stormwater. If not, I think of stormwater, I think of James Schofield. But I mean, we've got kids being shot by other kids. And, and being bailed out and bonded out, the very that has to change. I mean, if we're serious about this, a year from now we're saying, hey, man, we made these changes and we're a safer community because of the aggressive action that, that our courageous political leadership um, took on. Do we have a call? Okay, let's go to the phone if you don't mind. Sure. We have Jim in Florence. Hi, Jim. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. I, Ken, I'm not going to beat up on you like Betty did, um, but I'm going to beat up on you a little bit. You're engaging the wrong people. These two guys on city council can do absolutely when it in the whole scheme of things. The minuscule, the thing that they can do with crime is very minuscule. The people you need to be engaging on crime is the solicitor. He needs to be on this program. Uh, Jay Jordan, Philip Lowe, Mike Rickenbaugh. Those guys can do more about crime in our area because we're such a legislative state that. Um, they can affect crime in our area more than these guys on city council. Um, you, you talk about judges. Clearly, we have a problem with judges, whether it be circuit judges, whether it be magistrates. And Jay Jordan's answer was, well, I think the way we do judges is the best way in the country. 
Well, clearly it's not. Um, I said the other day, Florence County in 2012 had six homicides and we had four in one weekend. There, there's issues at the state level with the 2010 crime bill um, that create these issues. Um, but what is our first thing? When we hear about crime and, and we want answers on crime, our first inclination is, well, I want to talk to the mayor or I want to talk to the sheriff or I want to talk to the chief of police. All I got to do is go to bookings and see that law enforcement's doing their job. I mean, we've got in Florence County, we've got over 300 people sitting in jail right now. So clearly the cops are locking them up. So what's happening after that? What's happening after that is you've got uh, situations where the people that are hiding in fancy offices, whether they be in Columbia or Florence, aren't doing their job. So we need to stop asking these questions of guys on city council who can do effectively nothing. No, I, I, I disagree with that, Jim. I take strong exception with that. They set the budget. They fund law enforcement. The city budget allocates funds for the sheriff's department, or the county budget for the sheriff's department, the city budget for the city police guys, department, and the legislature doesn't appoint uh, magistrates. The Senate does. The General Assembly does not have anything to do with the appointing of magistrates. That is done by the South Carolina State Senate. Yeah, but the legislature in totality elects General Sessions Court judges. They do. You're right. So, but when you talk about the budgets, well, the thing is the cops are clearly doing their job. So these guys over here are doing the best they can on city council with the budgetary aspect. Cops probably do need to get paid more, but when it comes to overseeing law enforcement, clearly from the city's perspective, from the county's perspective, the cops are doing their job. So who's not doing their job? Well, I mean, it's obvious who's not doing their job. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. It's obvious who's not doing their job, and that is those when when someone is arrested for a violent crime and they're allowed to be back on the street the very next day, that's not city council's fault. That's not county council's fault. That's not law enforcement's fault. But it's damn well somebody's fault. I mean, somebody is allowing these um, conditions to, perp- uh, to perpetuate themselves and we're hearing it over and over and over again i want to go to jim about you know whose fault or who's going to no one person's going to fix this i mean it's going to take city council it's going to take county council it's going to take our our political leadership in columbia it's going to take a little help from the federal um, government to some degree it's going to take us the public holding our elected officials accountable for their appointments they make and how well they they do these jobs where you're you're kind of getting a look at the soft side of the underbelly that nobody ever seeks. Can you guys hang around a couple of more minutes? I, we got to take a break, Mike. Uh, I know you're answering the phones in there, but we got to. I don't want to get too, uh, as we say in the country, jammed up and behind. <laughs> don't on get our, caught in the bog. <laughs> on Waco, yeah, let's not get the car in the bog. Back in just a minute. I want to make cl- crystal clear my objective. My objective is not to blame anybody. My objective is to to, to realize we have a problem and to, and to fix the problem. And, and here's what I'm arguing: law enforcement is apparently doing a pretty good job at finding out and apprehending who are committing these crimes. I mean, they're not catching all the culprits, but on some of these violent crimes, it appears to me they're arresting people. These people are getting arrested, and Bond appears to be unbelievably low and passive and dismissive. And, I mean, maybe woke. You asked a question during the break about yeah, the, why? the why woke culture. I don't have any idea. Sentencing guidelines, I don't know anything when about that. it doesn't that. make common sense, what there's got to be an underlying reason, and I have not heard. But, I mean, if you're a law enforcement it? agent and you arrest somebody who commits a violent crime in your community 
and the magistrate or solicitor or judge sets a an inordinately low bond, I'm discouraged. I'm bothered. I'm perturbed about that. I, you know, I'm like, why in the world are we out risking our lives trying to apprehend these violent criminals when the judiciary just kind of lets them back out on the street? I mean, something's got to change there. So, so look, I'm not here to pin blame on anybody. We've got an issue, and, and together, whether it needs to be city, county, uh, county law enforcement, the, the the local delegation, I mean, there will be a lot of input we need from a lot of different places. Um, but we've got a problem, and and I think it's time we raise awareness in an aggressive fashion and have these conversations that some people, let's be honest, simply don't want to have. Let's go to the phone. And we have Florence County Sheriff T.J. Joy listening this morning, calling in. Hi, T.J. Hello there. How are you doing? Hey, Sheriff. How are you? What What is your contribution to this conversation this morning, sir? Well, to kind of clarify a lot of things, number one is, I think you had William Schofield on there earlier talking about the pay for men and women in this office. And I'm not, let's make one thing perfectly clear. I'm not talking about my salary. I'm talking about the men and women that work every day out here in the field. It's ridiculous. And we've got to do something about it. It's pitiful. People, people working at these uh, warehouses, department stores, making more than the men and women here. And it's been neglected for a long time. For these, for these men and women to go out every day to face what we face every day. You know, and talking about the, the, the crime here and the, 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 there's zero consistencies with these bonds being set. And here, here, here we go over the weekend, you know, Chief Heidler, myself, Chief Kiel, we all communicate. I'll, I'll put it in terms like this. As my chief deputy says, it, it, you know, it's like a hurricane. Can, can you stop it? You tell me we've added more men and women walking the road. We've got an investigative unit that's larger now. We've got a CEU unit and a narcotics bureau that is working every day. Our cases and our percentage is up. But I will say this, until discipline comes into the judicial system, and we quit revol- and the door quits revolving when we put them in turn. Look, we had armed robbery last night. We got the guy. I'm waiting to see what the bond's going to be. Loaded with weapons, stolen weapons from the city of Florence. So I'm telling the people today, I am consistent in what I do as your sheriff. I'm consistent. The men and women here are consistent. We have a policy in place for every single thing until they get consistency with their bond setting. Common sense is a virtue in life, and there's, there's not being any of that done with these bonds. And I have people kicking me in my stomach every day, busting about. They already back out. I had a guy that's shooting that stemmed from Sunday on Glendale Hill Road. This guy has been bonded. Six or seven times. If you'd like, I can get you a fact sheet about the bond and how many times. The shooting we had over in House Springs Road several months back, the kid that was killed on the bicycle, he's out on bond for murder. So why are we allowing hardcore, with, with a, I'm talking about a record, I mean a long record, Use some common sense in this when you set these bonds. I don't, I'm saying in my lane, 
I don't have anything to do with those masters. They are appointed by the senators. And some of them are real good people. Some of them don't use good judgment in setting bonds, and we have to listen to it. The converter cases that we've worked. You know, this guy tells us, look, I make $300,000 a year, Sheriff. Why do I care if y'all book me in? Y'all doing good. Y'all caught me in the act several times. But the bond, they bond them out. Guess what? They go back to doing what they do. So to clarify this, yes, number one is we need to pay the men and women of this office more money. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about the men and women that work here at this office, that work every day on the road. And I'm out there every day on the road with my men and women. And what we go through and what they go through for the money they pay them, not me. I got a salary I don't need. Okay? But at, at the end of the day, until we get off the bus riding, sipping our sippy cups, and realize we got a problem and, and take a stand. It's a big problem on both ends. The pay and the revolving door letting people back out. Thank you, thank you, TJ. Appreciate that, my man. You very, uh, I was very impassioned. I mean, you hear the passion and commitment in his voice, um, and it really centers around. It appears to me, and I don't want to jump to conclusions, um, but it appears to me that a lot of the focus needs to be on the sentencing and the people responsible for um, passing sentences. Now we got to be careful here because we live in a country that has due process, and you're innocent until proven guilty. I think the key phrase that that Sheriff Joy made was common sense. I mean, there has to be some common sense applied. We're, we're not insinuating that someone is guilty before they're proven guilty of a crime. But if you've got somebody with a rap sheet a mile long, uh, that, that they're caught with a gun, th- th- there's some application. They don't deserve it. Well, I mean, to, to, to me, they've forsaken some of their um, due process. I mean, they've historically and habitually broken the law. They're a danger and a threat to society. That, that's a different category. And, and you guys are nodding your head. I mean, I think you hear the, no, I don't want to say frustration, the commitment in the sheriff's voice. Brian? No, yeah, absolutely. You know, I talk to officers every day and, and know what they're doing. And, and yeah, you got you can be a cashier at Bucky's and make the same as a police officer. You know, and, you know, it's great that we got some good-paying jobs coming to our community, but we got to pay people more, you know. And uh, Sheriff Joy and Chief Heidler, those gentlemen – Every single day, you can call um, either one of them. I can call either one of them any time of the day, and they'll take my call. I mean, they are here for us. But at some point, you just you just feel a sense of hopelessness. There, there's a breakdown between apprehending and arresting and setting bond. I mean, that's as simple as that. I mean, we, we've, I think we have, and we kind of knew where we would end up, guys. I mean, you know, we got to be careful and, and not jump to conclusions, but we know that's where we would end up, to me. There needs to be some forceful evaluating and aggressive evaluating of who is setting bonds that are inappropriate. And, and you know, I, I think that's, the, that's the, the hard reality, and those are the conclusions that we've got to some way somehow get to. Do we have a call? Okay, let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Ashley in Poston's Corner. Hey, Ashley. Good morning, fellas. Great show as usual. Um, I'll tell you the name of the judge because it was in one article that sentenced that low bond on the guy who killed the 11-year-old. And she's consistent in setting low bonds and re- the revolving door in Florence County. We want to get things better in Florence County, get rid of the chief magistrate, Belinda Timmons. And I'll say her name, Belinda Timmons, because she has consistently set low bonds. 
Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I don't know if that's the case or not. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you guys to, to comment on that, but um, there, there's a caller being very candid and, and forthright and, and aggressive in their opinions. But, but somebody out there is not getting the job done, and, and we as a group collectively have to address that reality. So, so Jim, did I believe that Brian Braddock and, and William Schofield could walk in here and wave a magic wand and, you know, crimes, uh, you know, decline? And No, I, and I never believe that. I think these are two of the people that have expressed an interest to me in wanting to be a part of cleaning up our city and addressing the crime problem, and I don't vote. I mean, I, you know, I, the, the senator does certain things, the General Assembly does things, the city county council um, does things. I think the one thing I've heard from both of you guys is if there's going to be a plan to better compensate law enforcement, you want to be at the table when those sorts of decisions are made. 100%. Hands down. Okay, fair enough. Um, thanks to both of you for being here this morning. Um, 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, and love to hear from you out there. And, um, I mean, I can't imagine a magistrate degree and to come on and explain why they set sentencing. Uh, we, we may do this. I mean, I've got some people in my past that, that are very familiar with how that world works. M- maybe we get one of those to guest in here one day and explain some of the sentencing guidelines. Um, but the invitation is open. Well, sure it is. It's always you know. open. I mean, you know, and, and once again, I think there are magistrates to do a, a, a fabulous job. I think there's some that don't. And I think we've got to identify those that are consistently setting low bond, allowing violent criminals back on the street, and replace them. I mean, that, that's just the cold, hard truth of where we're going to. If we're interested, if, if we're interested in being politically correct and scoring political points, we'll, we'll have this conversation five years from now. If we are serious about fixing the problem, we'll identify the problem and we'll make corrections. Held accountable. Yeah, fair enough. Every public servant should be held. Accountable. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 A very spirited conversation. Um, always welcome so important. The, the listeners and callers' input. Um, and, and once again, I'm not suggesting that, that one or two or three people can fix the problem we have. The first thing we've got to do is admit we have a problem. I mean, there's still many, many elected officials who don't admit we have a problem. Uh, they ascribe to the leniency of sentencing and uh, some of the woke agenda and political correctness. Um, and, and look, a first-time offender, nonviolent crime, I'm for a lenient sentence. I mean, I really am. I mean, I, I'll, I'll listen to you there. We can debate that. But at some point in time, someone proves themselves to be a threat and a danger to society, and common sense has to suggest when that person uh, forsakes their right to be um, or to, to afford them every ounce of due process. Let's go to the phone. David in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hello, David. Hello, yes. Uh, I used to work, do ministry down in the Charleston area, and I dealt with a lot of people who, for various reasons, went through the prison system. And I came away with a certain impression at that basically your criminals knew how to work the system, your non-criminals didn't know how to work the system and made all the wrong decisions. And one thing that my impression, and so what I'm really asking here is somebody to tell me whether my impression's wrong or right, okay, uh, is this. Uh, if you were foolish, you'd get the bail and you'd pay it yourself out of your pocket. If you knew the system, you'd go to a bail bondsman and you'd pay him 10%. He would give surety for you, and you were out. So if you had a $100,000 bail, you only paid 10000 
to the bail bondsman. If you didn't show up in the court, the bail bondsman didn't care one way or another because a bench warrant would be put out for you, and you'd be eventually rearrested, and he'd keep the ten thousand. Uh, so, you know, so if you make the bail even lower, uh, it even makes it where you pay the bail bondsman less. And my basic impression was that uh, the ones who really got hurt in our in our prison system or in our, in our judicial system was the poor guy who didn't really understand the system. He's not a criminal, but he ends up, you know, he takes him a long time to gather the bail together and everything. And then by the time he's released, he's lost his job and he's out on the street and da, 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 da. And so um, I'm just kind of wondering, is my impression about the bail system correct from what, from what I noticed or what I thought I was seeing happening in the Charleston area. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. Yes. I mean, that, that, in my time in local government, when I would um, communicate with people in law enforcement about what I could do as a county council member to help, not at the state level, the county level, um, th- there was always those sorts of stories. These people who know the system, they understand the system, they know how to take advantage of the system. And, and the poor guy who broke the law a couple of times, he's not a criminal, he's not a danger, he's not a threat. Um, but he doesn't understand how that system works. Um, we know how drive-throughs at certain restaurants work. Why? Because we go through them a lot. Well, when these habitual defenders, they just know how that game is played, and to believe they don't is foolish. Back in a minute. Bob Dylan wrote it. Ugh. Old Crow Medicine Show sang it. <laughs> and Darius Rucker made it very, very, very <laughs> popular, right? Yes. Yeah. In spite of the fact that Dylan wrote it. Dylan wrote it. Yeah. Old Crow Medicine Show sang it. Mm-hmm. And then Darius made a bunch of money on it. Commercialized yeah, really it. Big yeah, hit profited out. in quite yeah. the big way. And I guess you're um you're playing that song because of the concert that Darius yeah. gave free of charge Sunday night. Free of charge to university students. I think everybody else had to pay. But um, kind of a, uh, I don't want to say a benefit concert, but a tribute concert to the, uh, to the women's basketball team That's right. at South Carolina because we know how important women's basketball is in America today. Forget football, forget basketball, forget baseball, forget the NFL for that matter. Concentrate and pay attention to mm-hmm. women's basketball. Well, right? they are winning national championships. Well, so. They won a couple. You're right. And uh, Dawn's rocking that Gucci and Louis Vuitton. It's, uh, it's happening in Columbia. Good, good uh, for her. An interesting conversation. In the last hour. Last hour. That was a powerful hour, I think. It's Prob- very necessary based on what's going on in our local communities now. Well, I mean, and, and I want to I reiterate. I looked during the break because I thought I knew how this works. Uh, the recommendation for magistrates are given to the governor by the county senatorial delegation. That's via the, um, the South Carolina State Constitution. Let me throw something out there. Um, and I know what the legislature believes about this. They don't like the fact, and I guess we could argue um, there are some things we can't argue. There are some things so absurd. I want to get to this before the end of the week. This forgiving student debt. I mean, the absurdity of a uh, a truck driver in Kentucky who didn't go to college paying for the debt someone accumulated while getting a petroleum engineering degree at Texas A&M is asinine. It's stupid. It makes no sense. You can't argue that point from an intellectual perspective, unless you're a just a dunce or just a bleeding heart liberal who doesn't believe anybody uh, deserves to own their mistakes or responsibility for the decisions they make in their life. 
Um, that's a no-brainer, and I'll get to that before the end of the week. I've got a lot of material about student debt, the uh, just just the ridiculousness of forgiving student debt. Nobody forgives debt. I mean, debt transfers from one uh, place to another. So if you forgive the student debt of the person who went to Texas A&M and got a petroleum engineering degree and making $100,000, $300,000 a year, and the Kentucky truck driver who didn't go to college but is paying taxes, uh, I mean, that you can't square that up. I mean, that's fundamentally stupid, absurd, uh, irresponsible, un-American, unpatriotic. But some of these things you can legitimately debate. So let's debate for a second um, whether or not we should elect the chief magistrates. And the chief magistrate in consult or in vice consent um, appoints other magistrates. There's some review or vetting process. Um, I think, I don't want to say, but I, I think that's kind of sort of what Jim's arguing for. Uh, probably a, a modified version of what he's arguing for. Uh, we've heard Jay Jordan say, I just don't think we want judges uh, you know, raising donations or raising contributions and, and spending money on billboards saying, vote for me and I'll be the judge that locks everybody up. Vote for me and I'll be the judge that doesn't put anybody in jail. Um, you're right. I mean, that, that gets a bit testy. Mm-hmm. But but I think we can have that debate. We can debate what is best. Um, I believe it's in the county's best interest to have a county council chairman elected countywide and three members of the nine elected at large. I think you get better government. If you've got a county council chairman who, who uh, answers to everybody in the county, and you've got three members who are elected not in districts, but but as at-large members, I think you get a better county council. I'm not king of the world. I don't know what has to happen. I would imagine you got to have a referendum and all these other sorts of things. But, but I've, I've always believed uh, we innovate in the private sector. Why don't we innovate in the public sector? I mean, why don't we look at some of the yields of the public sector and say, wow, man, I think we could govern better if we did this. Uh, we've done it forever this way. We've got a county council chair who's appointed by the nine members, and I'm using Florence County uh, here exclusively. Uh, why not allow every voter in the county to elect the guy or lady they want to lead of the local governing body? I just think we get better government out of that. Um, you do expand the elections. you got people voting for more officers. And on the other side, you would say, no, um, we, we have a, a representative republic by and large. I mean, I elect Dave Baker for my district. Um, Mike gets elected for his district. They get together. They decide who needs to be chairman of county council. Um, and we kind of do that with the magistrates when the, the recommendations for magistrate are given by the Senate to the governor. And, um, and then the governor confirms based on, I guess, some degree of advice and consent. I mean, you got to know whether the person is somewhat qualified. But, but I think, I mean, newsflash, um, guess what? There is some political favoritism and even nepotism involved in selecting um, people who make very important decisions. It, it doesn't really matter in, in, in all of our lives if someone is behind on child support and got a lenient sentence or not. But when someone decides to arm themselves and go to a shopping mall and discharge that weapon, that's a different animal. I mean, can we agree to that? That there's something different about discharging a gun aimed at another human oh, being. Of course. I mean, yeah, sure. But but we're kind of categorizing when we say lenient sentencing and some of the and I'm telling you guys, call me what you'd like to. And I would imagine someone will say, he's racist, he's racist. This is the Obama doctrine. 
I mean, this this is rest and residue of the Obama doctrine, and Obama based that on the number of African Americans who are incarcerated. I mean, and that's just, that's the argument he made. He didn't say that because he's far too smart and articulate. But that's the argument he was making. Why are so many young black men in jail? Well, they're committing a lot of crimes. See, if you really want to address, TJ talks about law enforcement pay and, and he needs help from, um, he said we need consistency. That's his word. We need consistency from the sentencing arm. Uh, if you want to go even further back, I mean, we could do a week's worth of shows on the breakdown of the family. The fact that some of these people who end up committing violent crimes have never had that anchor in their life that teaches them um, right from wrong. I sent you a lyric to a Springsteen song. You leave it to me to put a Springsteen song in, in the middle of this debate. But there's a song he wrote for his mom. And he said, if Pa's eyes were my window into a world so hard and true, your eyes. No, he said, you kept, you couldn't stop me from looking, but you kept me from calling through. In, in essence, Bruce is singing about um, parenting. You know, the father's eyes were his window into the world so cold and true. Hey, there's a real world out there, and I see it. There's some good things about it, and there's some not-so-good things about it. The mom was kind of the filter. I'll let you look, but I can't stop you from looking, but I can't let you call through. And we've got so many people, young people in America today, that have not had that influence. They've not had that safeguard. They've not had that insulation. They've not had that love and encouragement. And, and I don't, I mean, are we desensitizing violence? I mean, there, there's a million different plays you can go from here but if you really want to go back to the fundamental issue in America today, there is a there is a large share of, of our young men and women, men in particular, who aren't getting that their lives aren't anchored alongside someone who has their best interest at heart. Whether I agreed with my father or, or not, I never disputed whether he had my best interest at heart. Whether I believe that my mom did everything she should have done the way she should have done it. I never disputed whether she had my best interest at heart. And you learn out of that. You gain a certain respect of society. You understand that there's certain things in bounds and certain things out of bounds. You don't carry a damn loaded gun to a shopping mall because you know better than to do that. So if you really want to go back to the center of the onion, so to speak, it's the, it's the reality of so many young people not being equipped with that true barometer of right and wrong. Um, it, it would have never in a million years crossed my mind to load a gun and go to a shopping mall. But because I had a sense of right and wrong, somebody had taught me that there are certain things. Not, I mean, it's not social acceptance or not. I mean, it, it's, it's really simple. You don't do that. And, and, but, but we have a generation of young people who have not had, not, not, of their, not of their own doings. Let's be honest here. I mean, it's not the kid's fault. The kid's brought into the world that there's nobody there to set the example for that kid so he doesn't end up loading a gun and going to a shopping mall or, or getting caught up in a bad drug deal or joining a gang. Um, so, see, I've, I've read a lot about where the gangs appear to be this anchor, the place they belong. Um, I never felt more comfortable um, in the presence of my parents, more secure, more insulated, more taken care of. Somebody's there for me. So, so I think there's a human psychology component to this, that those kids that don't get that sort of encouragement, don't get that sort of a fundamentalism in their life, th th they end up the kids, by and large, I'm not saying every single one. I mean, we know there are some kids from, uh, from perfect families who've done some pretty um, absurd things. But, but on the average, 
the kids that end up in those situations and, and an innocent people lose, an innocent person loses their life, we can go past law enforcement. We can go past lenient sentencing or not. We can go past what the Senate does and what the, the legislature should do. Um, but, but the reality is I, I don't know what to do about kids who don't have that anchor in their life. Once they make that decision, however unfortunate it may be, there has to be monumental consequence. And, and right now, it doesn't seem to me like that's the case. Let's go to the phone. Here's John in Lamar. Hello, John. Hey, guys. How y'all doing this morning? Hey, John. Hey, Ken, I got two points for you. One on the magistrate thing. Instead of having elected officials or appointed officials as far as magistrates go, why don't we have a three magistrate panel that gives out all the bail and, all, and, and you know, the majority has to rule on it? You know, same way, you know, with the Supreme Court, you know, you have to have a bunch of judges. They all have to agree and, and go on. But you have a three-panel magistrate system, then the bail's not, somebody's not going to be let out for nothing, you know, or somebody may you know, may not have a high bail. You know, it'll be, it'll be averaged out. Second thing is, when you're talking about these kids and their dads, you know, the government got what they asked for because back in the day, you know, I'm 51, I'm a little bit older than you, not much. <laughs> but back in the day, you know, when the welfare came along, I can remember when, you know, the government come along and said, you know, ladies, you know, the more, you know, the, you get more money for having more kids. You also get more money if the breadwinner's not in the household. So that separated the father from the mother and had the mother had, and unfortunately that affected more African-American people in the African-American community than it did others. But all at the same time, that separated everybody. So now the government's got what they asked for. They had nobody bringing up the kids. The kids had to go out. They got little gangs and whatnot. And the other to get approval and, and, and encouragement from other people. Instead of having their dad there to beat their butt when they, need, you know, when they needed it, and, you know, whatever. So we got what we asked for. All right, guys. Thanks. Have a good day. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. I mean, the family is fundamental to the existence of society. I mean, there are certain things that have served... Uh, civilization well over the not the years and years but the centuries and centuries and the family unit is paramount i mean it really is when you think about um, what you give to a family what you take from a family uh, the sense of belonging you get in a family now it's not tj joy's job to reestablish the family it's not the senator's job to reestablish the family I mean, that, that is a decision society made as a whole and in the collective. And I think if anybody expresses that on this show, it's Carl. I mean, an African-American listener that we have who calls in periodically and has explored many things we did, um, you know, in, in relation to the government. I'm talking about in the name of government to basically disband and devalue the American family, uh, the, the global family for that matter. I mean, it's broken. And, and the brokenness has led to um, a lot of issues and experiences that we wish were not uh, real. And, and I'll say this. I mean, I'm speculating here, but this is an opinion radio show. I'm not a journalist. I, I would imagine that the stories of the kids that committed the crimes over the weekend here in town, um, I bet on, on average, they come from broken homes. They come from a place of not, you know, sleeping in the same house night after night with a father and a mother. And, and I think those sorts of experiences are important. But once again, um, the government in its infinite wisdom, whether it intended to or not, basically 
incentivized the abandonment of the family. I mean, Carl goes into great detail and specificity about, you know, the government programs were intended to, to, to demonize the single father who left. Uh, but, but that's not the case. I mean, Carl kind of turns it around and says uh, the, the, the way it was couched and the way they've tried to convince the public to understand it is not the the truthfulness and not the gist of of what we've done here. But once again, um, you're talking about a um, not just a socioeconomic cultural issue. You're talking about a generational sort of issue. Um, I've done the math, and, and odds are, if your kid goes to a school today, well, within earshot of my voice, there, there's about one in every three of those kids going to that school on average. Some schools will be a little bit different than others. Higher percentage here, less percentage there. But on average, uh, by my calculations, about one of every three kids who goes to that school that day leaves there without a father in the home. That's scary. I mean, that, that's that's a third, guys. It may be a little higher than that. It may be 40%. I know it's 40% in some of these school districts. But but are, do, do we really believe that that does not have a profound impact on the way these kids develop, the habits they they form the um, the relationships they create, uh, the way they conduct themselves and how they live their lives. Uh, once again, the family has been a very, very, very important component of modern society. And and the federal government in America, can't speak to other countries, they have incentivized the, the breakdown, uh, the breakup of the American family. And you can argue it's in the name of government dependency and, and loyal voting constituencies. I mean, there's kind of a, um, not a conspiracy theory, but there's a an argument to make that that has been a big part of it. But um, but, but once again, the argument we're trying, or the, the point we're making here is not cultural. It's not societal. These, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, we're, we're seeing a dramatic increase in crime. I think I understand some of the, um, some of the underlying conditions, but, but it's not law enforcement's job to address that. It's not, you know, the magistrate's job to address that. I mean, they, they have a fairly precise role to play in this. And you heard from T.J. Joy, our sheriff here in Florence, the commitment, the frustration. Um, we need consistency. Those who are responsible for passing sentence and setting bond need to be consistent in that. And I'm not arguing against uh, lenient sentences. I'm not. I don't know when a sentence would be lenient or not. If I was a magistrate, I would, because I would have dedicated myself to understand what my responsibilities are. And I want to be crystal clear here. I think there are some magistrates that do a very, very, very good job. I think there are some that don't take that responsibility as seriously or allow some sort of um, uh, ancillary ingredient to become a part of their decision-making, whether they buy into the wokeness, political correctness, whether they believe that the the, the plight of young African-American males are something that needs to be considered in part, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's a decision that they can only answer. But, but we have a problem here with violent crime, and we have a problem in consistency of sentencing and and you know we can we can argue that America's adopted this um this lenient sentencing agenda and I get that on bad checks or child support or you know some of the um some of the the, the offenses that aren't violent I mean I believe that we've got nonviolent criminals in jail that probably shouldn't be in jail I mean let's put them uh, you know doing work for the community good I mean let's make them productive members they're not a threat to society they're not going to cause you um, harm. 
Is Bernie Madoff really going to cop it? I know what he did was reprehensible. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Uh, what, what he did was um, profoundly wrong and misguided. But do we really believe that, that, that Bernie Madoff is going to kill someone or injure someone? I mean, he should be uh, punished. There, there's no question about that, and maybe incarceration is the, uh, is the punishment. But, but some of these people have demonstrated an unwillingness to obey any sorts of rules and committed acts of violence against one, two, three, four, five, six people. At some point in time, they've lost their right to due process. At some point in time, they've not proven to be, you know, um, respectful of the civility required in the way we live our, the rest of our lives. Let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side. 843-661-0937. Rev's always nervous at some of these conversations that we have off the air because uh, we're talking about you, our listeners. And how, anyway, <laughs> I'm kidding. There. Of course we're kidding. I just, I just want you to know when the mic's on, the mic's on. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And it was on. Yeah. Um, and if you heard anything you didn't, anyway, uh, let's go to well, the uh, Bert in Florence. Hi, Bert. You know, you should never say anything that you wouldn't say on a hot mic. There you go. Never, You're right. Never, never. True. I've learned that the hard always, way. Always assume the, the mic is hot in our business. Always assume always. it is. Always. Yep. It's just like a gun. It's always loaded, whether it is or not. Mm-hmm. Treat it exactly. that way. <laughs> you know, and instead of looking at law enforcement and judges and all that, and and because here's the problem. I've seen this over and over. The same person comes into a courtroom, been in there three or four times before, and the judge will give them this little pep talk of life and how they need to do better with their life. That's the talk their father should have had with them, not the judge. The judge should be a little harsher than that. The law enforcement these days, oh, they gotta they gotta carry around a drug with them in case somebody overdosed on drugs so they can counteract it. They they're they're turning them into social workers. And police shouldn't be social workers. Judges shouldn't be the father of the person that's the father's job so what has happened is i've said a hundred times there's, there's no shame in the family breaking up because you get rid of the man well guess what you're going to get his child support and if you can't get that or sometimes even if you can you're going to get the government to step in and play daddy there's no need for a father in the home and that's completely government's fault so they've got to so get to the real source which is welfare they got to end welfare and cause these families to, you know, you get in a fight with your spouse, you just throw them away. That's that's the life we live in today. You just just get a divorce. Yeah, we'll just get on welfare or whatever. That didn't used to be the case. Used to you had to go to your family. Your family would give you a good kick in the butt and make you fix your marriage. And that's what's missing here is we don't deal with family anymore. We don't like the situation. We just Go and let the government take care of it. And the problem is nobody's going to vote for that because nobody's going to say, oh, I don't want Santa Claus. And that's exactly the problem. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. See, Mike's looking at me like, these Southerners really are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's got like this, this curious look of, yeah, they, these Southerners are, yeah, they're, they're as crazy as everybody told me uh, they had the potential to be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, he, he, he wasn't disagreeing. Okay, well, there, there's, Southerners are crazy, but Northerners are worse. Uh, there, there, way, way to dig yourself out of that one. Nice. No question about it. Hey, uh, let's go to somebody else on the phone. Okay, let's go there. David in the PD. Hello, David. 
Man, that, that y'all need to trademark that one. What did you say? Southerners are crazy and Northerners are worse. Southerners are bad, but Northerners <laughs> are worse. That's kind of interesting. Uh, I was thinking about uh, you playing Darius Rucker there. And, man, I think of Darius. I think he lived at the Honeycombs. And, man, he played at the Pete's Place there on South Main Street. And he does a good version of David Allen Coe. Uh, that song they play at the group therapy, but, uh, and, and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna promote your show here. Anybody that says, what did you say about the Twitter lawyer that cried what, easy on the eyes? She's easy on the eyes. I'll have to say she's, a, <laughs> she's I, photogenic. I if nothing else, <laughs> I, I saw, I saw her and, and I said to myself, you know, she kind of looks like Paula Abdul and you mm, talk kinda, about generational kinda. issues, uh, back in our day. Heck, man, I like that. We are the world. I mean, hey, we let's embrace. I, I can assure you I'm a globalist when it comes to people. Paul Abdul knocks on my door, I'm going to answer it. Uh, so I'm letting you know that. But we're talking about how the world is kind of changed. And I'm going to pick on you, Ken. Your man Springsteen had a song called Darlington County. And I, I, want, I want you to interpret that song for me because – was that one of those type easy rider type things when the old northern guy comes down south and he gets picked on or whatever? I, I'm gonna ask you real quick to interpret that. Well, I mean, Darlington County. I mean, the 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 text of the song is they come to Darlington County because one of his buddies had a connection with a job and uh, they come down here as high and mighty northerners. Uh, you know, they kind of swoop the southern girls off their feet and. Um, uh, there's a lot in that song. I mean, but, but that's kind of the gist of it. Okay. Well, well I mean, I think he says it, well, our daddy's on each one of the world trade centers, which is, I mean, they're, they're demolished now, but I mean, there's, you know, we're big shots from New York and, and if you'll only hang around with us, we'll, we'll, we'll lead you to the fast lane, so to speak. No, I, you know, I, I kind of understand the song, but here's my thing about this. This is what disappoints me is that I understand where he's coming from, but the people, this was ironic. Darlington County and Florence County, we're getting all this crime. I'm bringing this to, and that's because the media itself, somewhere along the line, they have glamorized this inner city life. And Springsteen from Jersey, uh, Essex County, uh, Compton, uh, Chicago, and with you know, the, the, the urban, what do they call it, urban radio? They glamorize all this stuff. And what do they talk about? They're talking about bees and hoes and this and that and violence. And nobody holds them accountable. They'll sit there and talk about Donald Trump, but they don't hold our media accountable uh, with all that language. And these kids, I feel sorry for them in a way. They listen to that. They think, okay, I, I live in Darlington, I live in Florence. I need to act like I, I'm from Essex County or I'm from Brooklyn or from Compton or, or, or Chicago. You know, take advantage. And, and I always say this, and I'll leave you this. These folks out there that do all this stuff, if they could just channel their skills, and I talk to them on a daily basis. I work here on Highway 52. Daily basis. Man, if you could just channel your skills to something more positive, you'd make ton of more money and you can sleep at night with all these pills and drugs but anyway you have a good day thank you david appreciate that somebody else on the phone let's go there steve and florence is next hello steve hey morning guys yeah it's northerners we swear a lot 
We, we swear uh, a lot. We just do it politely. <laughs> yeah, I have to censor myself on the radio, and then I'll lose my train of thought. <laughs> I think of another word. But, um, <laughs> and we all know the crime, the crime statistics, the broken family. Um, but what can we do as a community to get these officers some more money? I know back in my hometown, every stop they made, every ticket they made or did, they got a piece of that money. It went to the, you know, to get them more raised, to hire more police officers and, and, you know, build new facilities and equipment for them and all that. How do we go about doing something like that for these guys? And I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Yes, yeah, Steve's got to make up words to keep from saying other words. <laughs> and, and it loses his train of thought when he but does. But, I mean, he's, he's a skilled talker. I mean, if you can do that on the fly, then obviously you have a uh, a legitimate skill there. Um, a lot of folks, and, and, I, and I fall in this category, you know, you wonder, and I don't know what a law enforcement agent should make. I don't know what it's worth to be a deputy sheriff. I don't know what it's worth to be a, a police officer. Um, none of those people go into that profession to get wealthy. I mean, I think when when you tell your... Your father, your mother, your 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 guidance counselor, your um, somebody you respect in life. I want to go in law enforcement. I don't think anybody goes into that profession believing that there's a a million dollar a year payday. I just don't buy that. There's some security, and by security, I mean employment security. Obviously, you know, you go to work wearing a bulletproof vest. How secure can that be? How safe um, can that be? But but a lot of people would argue, how do we have a twenty million dollar uh, you know, museum and uh, performing arts center. And and I'm not knocking any of that. I mean, I think those are amenities that add to the quality of life in a community. No question about it. I'm not saying we don't need museums. We don't need uh, some of the cultural components of our city. I think that does enhance and improve and and and, and, and better us in general. But, but how do we prioritize? I think that's the first thing we need to really carefully consider um, when I was in a business of building truck beds, um, I may or may not have uh, enough heaters, but I got to have enough steel. I mean, I'm in the business of building truck beds. Steel is required. Uh, if I'm going to build a truck bed, I might can build it without a heater. I can't build it without steel. So, so there were priorities I had to account for every single day. And once again, I'm not saying we don't need libraries or museums or performing arts centers or ball fields or stadiums or, you know, um, uh, convention centers. I mean, of course, I think all of those add uh, as, as you know, ingredients to making a better community. But but let's do the, the essentials first. And I've always felt when the county sets its budget, law enforcement and personal protection or um, fire protection and first responders, those sorts of people have to be first considered. Um, we may run out of money at the library's budget. We may run out of money at the museum's budget, but we're not going to run out of money nor skimp on uh, what we owe these people who provide a core function of government. You nor I believe that a museum is a core function of government. It's an amenity. It's a quality of life issue. There's value there. It's very abstract. It's very um, uh, imprecise. But, but I know this. If you need a police officer or you need a first responder or your home catches on fire, you don't want to know that we spent that money on the museum or we spent that money on uh, the Performing Arts Center or the Convention Center or whatever else it is. And I think it goes back to reasonableness and and practicality and common sense. And and I've always felt when the county set its budget, um, if we're going to run out of money, 
Let's run out on things that, that honestly aren't core functions of government. Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. We always say in county government, if a dollar falls in the woods and nobody sees it, do we still have to give it to public safety? <laughs> um, you're right about that. but and, and, of course, the problem with that is is that public safety knows that, and so they want helicopters and tanks and Humvees and drones, and, you know, they, they never stop asking. And, and when do you tell them no? It's hard to say no because they go, well, if you tell me no, people are going to die. And when you tell the museum no, nobody's going to die, you know? Mm-hmm. If we don't see that Gogan, people are going to die. It doesn't work. But one of the reasons that, that we give people more money, I have found in just in, in running my own business and, and working in government, is that when, when we hire somebody to do a job and then political circumstances stop them from doing that job, we try to make up for that by giving them more money. Because we're like, well, you know, you can't really do your job, but, hey, here's an extra $2 an hour, man. Just relax. Uh, the truth of the matter is most police officers would tell you now nobody would ever turn down a raise. But if you gave them an either-or statement and said, would you rather make another $2 an hour or would you rather be empowered and backed by your political offices to do your job, I'll tell you which one they pick every single time. They want to do their job, man. They want to go out there and enforce the law. That's what they are in, law enforcement. They don't want to be counselors. They don't want to be uh, marriage marriage psychologists. They don't want to be specialists on, you know, alcohol and drug rehab. They want to enforce the laws. And that's what they'd rather do than anything. Now, they can do these other things, and some of them are really good at it, but they were never trained in it. It just we get lucky, and, and they learn the ropes as they go, and they start to learn the political realities of the job, and they – they shift from law enforcement and, and to, you know, community advisors almost, if they're skilled at that to start with. But it wasn't what they are hired for. So while I would say, yes, let's and, – and I am all for increasing the pay of, of law enforcement officers. I think that what we ask them to do and, and, you know, what they would be risking versus, you know, some of the other government jobs that get paid more than them – uh, that frankly probably do less and take less of a risk, I think that's probably not very fair. But at the same time, they would rather be empowered by the people who stand behind them, the political officers and the community, to just do their job. But it doesn't do you any good if you keep bringing the same guy to jail. I, I, I know I have some buddies that work in law enforcement. They've brought the same guy to jail four times in the same day. Now, explain to them that their job matters. Yeah. Very That's valid point. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate it, my man. Um, a, a very valid point. And, I, you know, th- these are interesting debates and conversations. You know, La- Larry and I have debated the public sector and private sector for about as long as we've been on the radio, and Larry found us. And, um, and, and some, of these things think, some of these things exist in the private sector as well. I've just always felt, uh, and understandably so, the private sector has the ability to address Who's good at the job and who's not? How do we take care of those really good at the job and rid ourselves of the ones that aren't very good at the job? The private sector is a very simple animal when it comes to that. The public sector gets a lot more convoluted. Take a break. Back in a minute. Welcome back. 843-661-0937. Time for one more call before we get out of here. Let's go there. Tim in Hampton. Hello, Tim. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, I'm going to try to be brief because I know time's short. All right, Ken. Uh, we need to put people who are making these decisions about these criminals uh, 
we've got to have them have some skin in the game. You know, the, the, one of the biggest differences between government and uh, private business is product liability. If I manufacture a product that I know is risky and, and has some, uh, some detrimental harm, and I put it out there knowing what that risk is, knowing the harm, then you as a consumer, if, if I harm you with my product knowingly, then you have the ability to hold me accountable. You can sue me. You can bring class action. You can bring whatever lawsuit. We need to have the same thing for some of these magistrates, judges, and also for these politicians and, and, uh, and lawmakers. You know, it, just the, the, uh, the idea that, that, that they can promise us, and they do make us promises, that if we'll just put up with this restriction and this new law, that this is going to be better uh, and, and we won't have to deal with, with, with uh, crimes because of this. And I'll use gun control as an example. Um, if, if they want to be able to sue the gun manufacturers because somebody commits a crime with a gun, then we should be able to, the victims of, of, of criminals who have been put out um, back out on the street and the people who have broken those gun control laws because they're criminals, anyhow, that the, the victims and the, or the families of the victims of people who commit those crimes in violation of their gun control laws should be able to sue the very politicians who promised them that if they just passed that law, they wouldn't be victims. Amen. They I second that motion. We got, we're out of time. You make a very valid point. The Bureaucratic here, here. Accountability Act. Back in a minute.